Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. All in the name of Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and boy, do we have an episode for you. Today, we are here to talk about Stephen King's, tw- is it 2013, 2013. novel? 2013. So weird to be in the 2000s, because, uh, you know, we usually do these chronologically, but as we have announced in previous episodes, we are doing Dr. Sleep to coincide with the movie's release. Uh, so we are jumping ahead in time. It's sort of a little experiment we're doing. We found a door in the beach and we walked through it. It's true, which is re- which is relevant because our last book was The Wastelands true. and our next book, I believe, is Needful Things, right? Yeah. Who would you be in The Dark Tower? Uh, I think I'm... A, hey, baby, look at me. I'm an Eddie Dean. I'm an Eddie Dean I'm also. I'm kind of a so dashing... We could be like doppelgangers. Yeah, we could be yeah. Do- doppeldeans. I think I'm Roland for sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> cool, definitely Roland. good at shooting things. Definitely. Yeah, speaking of... Uh, so I'm rocking Real Colburn. Who's sitting across from me? Uh, this is Michael Crowdaddy Rothman. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite ones are the ones where there's that. like no alliteration or yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, and no like meaning. No, yeah. no meaning whatsoever. Uh, Although I do like to be a daddy. No, I'm just You joking. are a bit of a daddy. Yeah. Uh, and then who's joining us from across the country via via telephone? Mm, or The Shining. This is, <laughs> this is Dan... Torrance, and, <laughs> and that works perfectly because this is not Danny Torrance anymore. This is Dan, Uncle Dan Torrance. Never got used to it. Dan, I see him here. I wrote Dan. an article. I wrote an article on Doctor Sleep for AV Club, and I still feel like I called him Danny through the whole thing. Yeah, I just I'm not past it. Well, it, it's a, it's a shame that he doesn't have kids in this novel because then he could be called Daddy Danny. <laughs> <laughs> awful uh daddy, before, daddy so torrents we're gonna be going through dr sleep today but before we get started i think um a couple announcements one and this one hurts a little bit but i think for the sake of our sanity for the sake of the holidays and for the sake of the pod uh it's it's best for us to tell you that this will very likely be the last episode of 2019. Yeah. There is a slim chance we might pop in to record something else, uh, depending on any if any big news breaks or any other big things happen. But I think that uh, we're we're in the midst of a lot of work right now, and we're figuring out the sort of uh, fabric of the podcast future, and we need a little time to do that. So as, as you've noticed, we've kind of been tapering off episodes a little bit. We've been doing some two weeks at a time, uh, and just sort of easing ourselves into the holidays, easing ourselves into the next step of the podcast, the next chapter, you might say. Next chapter, indeed. Didn't you call, like, say that like the first couple were like seasons? Yes, we call them seasons. It's funny, because there's like no difference there, or anything. There really isn't, although I, we do try to earmark each year is like you know when the first episode of each year uh with the exception of the actual first year that we did this podcast we try to make it seem like there's a premiere of sorts so in that case this would be the finale yeah although maybe this is like that that buffy season where you know it's kind of finale but mm -hmm. it was only a finale because they pulled an episode because i think of uh columbine or something but Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to go down that road. Uh, Well, let me just say that we're still going to be active on our socials. We're still going to be present on Twitter and 
um, all the other places that you engage with us. So stay tuned. Start reading Needful Things because we're going to be jumping into that early next year. And that's a long one. So you're going to want to be doing that. So, uh, yeah, we just want to give you guys that heads up. And thank you so much for all of the listening you've been doing. And the nice thing about us taking a break is you can catch up on some old apps. Yeah. There's a ton of old episodes. And they're all back in the feed. They're all back in the feed. All the ones that we remastered. We did this year. It was making sure they're all cleaned. It's true. Clean them up. Uh, streamlining them in some ways, making yeah. them just sound good for y'all. Because, man, those early ones, uh, they sound great now. They do. Yeah. and th- I mean, they're still a little rough. They, uh, they sound like we're in a can. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, by your standards. Your standards are very high. Yeah. For me, I'm just kind of like, yeah, it sounds fine. It I sounds can understand right. people. Yeah. yeah, I'm just happy to have them, you know? Max said we posted on our Salem's lot, and Max said just like best episode ever or something. And no, I, he, he was it was very emo. It was like this is a great moment of the podcast. I know. Or that's why I replied. Like, that's why I replied with WTF. Yeah. Like, what is he, Gordy Lachance? He's like sitting in his car, like on the outskirts of town, just being like, God, I remember when we recorded Salem's lot. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 it was a good episode. Da, da, da. I do remember it. It yeah, was a good episode. It, it yeah. is. <laughs> listeners, the, the post is still up on Facebook. Please go see our, our yeah. hilarious exchange. Yeah, it was our hilarious exchange. It's actually very <laughs> sentimental and nice, but, you know, because you're like, I do remember those good times. I do. Well, we, it was like it was funny because we were, he immediately texted me after I yeah. replied on Facebook when we were laughing. So then we were just doing like a bit throughout the rest of it. Well, Anyways, hey, you get the bits on the on the social. Yeah, we still got the bits. We still, the bits for days. I know that's your guys' favorite part of the pod. <laughs> yeah, you love it more than Stephen King. It's true. It's true. So uh, so before we get started, I think just sort of a fun way to close out the year and uh, just to add a little bit of extra, uh, a little Susanna flair to this episode. Uh-huh. Uh, we both, because I think this is interesting, it's Monday that we're recording this, uh, November what, 18th? I think the 18th. Yeah. And we both, yeah. both of uh, AV Club where I work and Constant Sound where you work, we both published our top 100 movies of the decade yeah. uh, today, which was some cool lists. And we, got, we shared the same. We number shared one. the same number one, which was Mad Max: Fury Road. I'd love oh, to ask spoiler you. Spoiler alert! Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. Um, yeah. And then I, I'd like to hear from you uh, maybe some films that you really fought for to get higher. And I'll do the same. And then Dan can sort of chime in with some movies that he thinks should be on these lists. Uh, but even whether they are or aren't, Dan, I'm not asking you to like memorize our list. So uh, uh, I guess I'll start with you. What movies were you really writing for in terms of being the best of the decade? Well, I was such a like, lame ass because there are a lot of like, you know, whimsical and, and, and more um, obvious choices that I kind of had to fight for just because for, you know, populist notions, but also because I really love them. Like, I kind of got scoffed a little bit with La La Land because I yeah. actually love that movie and I think it's a just a phenomenal film and a pretty good example of how Damien Chazelle is just a phenomenal filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to kind of fight for that one and that was kind of one that was always in contention of like, well, we kind of want to add that one so maybe we take out you know La La Land. Ah, and, interesting. Um, what number did it end up at? It was like, I think somewhere in the 50s or something like that, which is yeah, too bad. Yeah, I feel like that's where it was on our list. Too. Um, I did really rally high to get uh, Silver Linings Playbook up there, which is my personal uh, number one favorite movie of the decade. Whoa. Yeah. That's huge. Um, I did really want The Social Network to be number one because I think it's a little more emblematic of the decade. Yeah. But I'm totally happy with Mad Max Fury Road because, look, I mean, that movie's fucking phenomenal. and It's got a little bit of everything. Phenomenal. I've said phenomenal like three times already. But I love Fury Road. I'm very glad it's on there. We are definitely a genre-leaning site, so mm-hmm. it makes more sense. But I thought we had some really cool, unique picks in there. I, I absolutely loved that we had Hereditary in the top five. Nice. So that was cool. And we need to talk about Kevin was also in the top five. That's too. wild. And that's a unique pick. Yeah, think, so. that is a unique pick. I dig that. You know, so, but what about you? What did you have to fight for? Uh... I my number one was Under the Skin. 
uh, because I just think it's incredibly yeah. striking and it's a movie I haven't stopped thinking about yeah. since it came out. And it kind of embodies a lot of what I really like, which is I like movies that don't like that can use non-actors or real footage, yes. like real behaviors in ways uh, that kind of commands a certain authenticity. Mm-hmm. And that's why another one of my favorite movies of the year, Trey Edward Schultz's Cresha. I love Cresha. Didn't make the list, but in our list of uh, like what we wanted to see on that did make it on, I wrote about Cresha. And Trey Edward Schultz is about to be a, a big deal. He's probably going to be at the Oscars this year for Waves. Really? You yeah. Think so? Oh, yeah. Based oh, on the buzz. I, it, well, well we, I guess we were the exception because we gave it a C plus on our site. Really? But here's the irony. We actually talked to Trey Edward Schultz Schultz about Krisha for a Thanksgiving feature because that movie is yeah. like a Thanksgiving classic. It's a right night, up there it's with a Thanksgiving nightmare. That's what I, I would say. Oh it's probably, God. if not the scariest, one of the scariest movies I saw yeah. all decade. And it's not even a horror movie. No, it's not. That's what I love about it. It's but just it got this hard. pervasive family, like that dread of like being with family when there is something horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, what's funny is that, so I didn't, I didn't, I totally forgot about this because it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, and it's only 80 minutes, but in that 80 minutes, uh, Clint Worthington, a uh, friend of the pod and also um, contributor for Consequence of Sound and um, editor of The Spool, he pointed out that in, in the movie, I guess, that uh, there is a sequence where he writes himself into the, 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 the film. And uh-huh. um, and the mother, the grandmother's like you're such a f- uh, you know you're gonna be a great filmmaker. Oh so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that ridiculous. is in there. Yeah. Um, no, I remember that made me laugh a little bit. Yeah. But but back then he wasn't like super famous yeah. yet. So I remember being like, oh, that's kind of cute. That that won South by Southwest actually yeah. for the yeah. Audience Award. So, but yeah, I feel like Waves is gonna have some real Oscar legs. Yeah. Based on and we AV Club didn't even give it a, like that good of a review. Yeah. Like uh, Dowd at AV Club was basically like. It's good, yeah. but I'm not as wild about it as everyone else is. Yeah. Like, cause, but I don't think our official review has come out yet. His like festival review, that's what he's saying. Oh, yeah, because you guys see that blurb. And yeah, then yeah. Thing. And so what else did I fight for? I mean, gr- I fought for Green Room to be oh, really high. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I think it made it, I think it's in the 30s on our list, which I'm fine with. Ours you know? is in the top 20. I think it's number 18, I think. Nice. And then Hereditary yeah. 2 I fought for. Uh, that is still on the list. I think it's like in the 40s maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love Hereditary. And then... Um, yeah, and then... And you I, had some hard write-ups, though. Yeah, man. The ones I had to write up, like, broke my brain, because I had to write up um, uh, Under the Skin, which is, you know, really I hard. love it, but it's hard to write about. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Upstream Color, which yeah. is, like, Shane Carruth's 2013 Mindfuck. It's yeah. really good. Which is not... It's, it's one thing to write about that film, but it's another to write about it in, what, 100 words? Yeah, because yeah. I only had, like, 150 words for it. And then I did First Reformed, another movie that I, I absolutely it. adore. Yeah. And I wanted then, that in the top 30, but it didn't end up being Yeah, it. that was in our, I think, 23 on our list. And then uh, I wrote up Mustang from 2016. That was a good write-up, I read it to them. Yeah, yeah. I, I reviewed that for Consequence of Sound, and I adore that movie. It's a Turkish film about six sisters, and really moving. It was It's one of the few more uh, weepier experiences I've yeah. had the theater over the last couple of years. So, And uh, the other one I fought for that it barely made it, it was number 98 on our list, was the comedy starring Tim Heidecker, oh, yeah. Rick Alverson's movie. Yeah. I still absolutely adore that movie. I yeah. wish it was higher. So Yeah. Th- there's definitely some tougher comedies and tougher films that I would have loved to have seen. I really wanted to see Eyes of My Mother in there. Mm. Um, just because, but it's in our, uh, 
our horror list, which by the time this drops this episode, which is going to be like Thursday or Friday, God willing, uh, the our horror list will have published, and I worked on it with Megan Navarro, um, leaning on several reviews that you wrote about on the site because you used to cover the horror beat with us. So yeah. uh, great top 25. I'm really excited about it. Can't wait it. to see that. Um, I wish we could do something like that. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun. But I, I do wish we were able to kind of put in a few more horrors, uh, like films. But I was happy that both of Ari Aster's films are in our top one, nice. or in our 100. So that was neat. But... Yeah, Dan, that's Dan, awesome. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's hear from Dan Caffrey. Taking, taking some of the good ones. No, I was gonna say Green Room. I would I would put Blue Ruin in there too. I, oh I yeah, think both these movies are are great. Um, I'm guessing it follows. I haven't. I'm sorry, I haven't made my way through all of either list yet. But I'm guessing it follows is, is probably on there. Yeah, it's uh, not in our top 100. It, it's not. No. Oh wow. It's really? Wow. In the 40s in ours. It's in a. It's on our top 25 for. I think. I, I honestly oh, think that's that, right. that, yeah, that the third act. It just. I, and I wrote about because I wrote about it today in the, in the for the horror thing, and I I said like you know third act aside, I still think that that final shot rebounds yes. big time, right? And it still is the the peripheral horror alone and just the premise alone warrants its inclusion, but. Yeah, it didn't make it. I was gonna say, I was because I was gonna say, yeah, third act is rough, but the final shot redeems it's it. It's so good. Yeah, it's perfect. It's yeah, uh, I rewatched it recently. And yeah, it was. Uh, I, I still love it. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I I don't know. It just came out this year, and so maybe I'm thinking of it too fondly. But I love her smell. I think it's such a different oh, yeah. kind of. That's on our thing. list. That's in our top 100. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, really? Okay. Yeah, that, that's you from your are, review, uh, actually. I know. Yeah, I, mean, I remember I reviewed it very highly for uh, COS, and uh, you know, you never know if it's gonna soldier through all the way till the end the end you know um i think it's in my top three of the year yeah i haven't made my list yet but it feels like it feels like such an accurate rock biopic even though it's not right um which is super cool yeah yeah a big yes to under the skin i think that's supremely underrated um and also too i mean just both sites having mad max free road number one like a high high cosign for that just because it's weird because that that seems like a movie that would be really genre and that not a ton of people would like, but I feel like everyone likes it. And I, and I mean mm-hmm. that in a good way. Like I, I think it's, it somehow feels very bold, but also very ubiquitous, which I think is a really tough thing to do. And it's one of those rare films where it actually could stand on the soapbox without actually looking like it's standing on the soapbox, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that was, that was, we were talking about it for um, this week's relevant content episode. And I had said, well, you know, if he's using the old IP for Mad Max, like, what did he do really differently? Because, you know, obviously Road Warrior has the chase. It has the same Mm -hmm. sort of elements in it. And obviously there's a a far more um, feminine presence that's in uh, Fury Road and and to greater extents than any of the other, uh, you know, entries, including Beyond Thunderdome, which literally stars Tina Turner. Um, But I think that what it it comes in with so much conviction Mm -hmm. and and with with its statements and its messages in ways that the previous entries didn't, which is why I think it warranted its comeback um, in ways. But man, yeah, yeah, there were just so many fucking huge, ambitious films that came out in this past decade of that level yeah. where you had yeah. filmmakers that are just like jumping over incredible hurdles. Like, I, I mean, I, I write about the, the Revenant, which I still love and a lot of people really don't, but I, I like the Revenant a lot. Um, yeah. But never when you think it. about it, you never saw it. No, I need to. Oh wow. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's the same type of thing where you're just like, how the fuck did they make this movie? Who directed it again? It's a big uh, name. Alejandro uh, Inarritu. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, um, I have a question. I don't have an answer for this cause I wasn't, directly and inv- i haven't like really scoured the list and i wasn't in direct i wasn't as involved as you were in the creation yeah. of the list is there a movie on there that you wish wasn't on there oh yeah what movie um say it 
No, I'm not going to say Come it. Come on, no, say it. It's going to piss off people. Eat his own. <laughs> no, there, there, there are a few that I, I kind of been like, eh. But the same thing is like, you know, I'm sure other people would say the same about the ones that I fought for, for sure. Yeah. You know, because I tend to lean more towards genre and, um, you know, yeah, that type of stuff. So, wait, Dan, did you just make a rampart joke? <laughs> oh, no, I said, oh, I wish Rampart I said, was in there. I said group effort, but it probably. Oh, group like effort! Thing. I thought you said Rampart because uh, we have a running joke about the Woody Harrelson. What is it like? Twenty thirteen? Hey, I, I fought for it. Twenty fourteen you know, Ramp. Yeah, no. uh, it's a long joke. Uh, we'll tell you in person sometime. Yeah. But I think it's time to move on. Look, I, up, uh, look up Woody Harrelson's Reddit AMA. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you'll understand why we always keep it about Rampart. Oh God, it's so bad. Uh, I think it's time to put on our nightcaps and hop into Doctor Sleep. And head up to Sidewinder. To Sidewinder. Yeah. Ooh, chilly. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? I don't believe they did. So, where do we begin I know. with Doctor Sleep, which is a sequel to what book? Uh, Salem's Lot. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> the Shining. The Shining, baby. Yeah. So, uh, J- Mike, you have you took some copious notes about the history of it, and I'm going to also bring them up, and we can sort of tag team this history a little bit. And Dan, why don't you chime in wherever you know you know? Well, first off, I I wanted to ask though because I think I'm the only one that's that that read this first time, right? I'm the only first. This was my here. first time. Or no, oh, no, no, no. I'm oh, sorry. My so, second time. So second time for yeah, you. Yeah, my, my second time also. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we have some uh, two-timers here and uh, just a one-timer here. <laughs> all right, fun. Oh, a Great. couple veterans, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we've all seen the movie. And we've all seen the movie. And yeah. this is what's yeah. kind of weird also that I was thinking about today um, well, 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 while walking around Chicago is that um, I was reading this while the film's coming out. I'm reporting about the film. Yeah. I went to go see the film. I hadn't actually finished the book yet at that at that point. I still had about 150 pages left to go. And that was very weird to do that and cover it on this yeah. podcast. And especially do the reverse. Yeah. Because we've already talked about the film. You already know our thoughts about the film in the past yeah. episode. So, I don't know. It was It was very odd to be doing it this way because it felt very unorthodox for the loser. Sure. So, yeah. So yeah. like you knew, but like you still were surprised in some oh, ways probably totally. the ending because yeah. the ending of the book and the movie are so different. It was very weird. It was almost like a deconstructionist read yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of my uh, introduction to it because, and what was kind of weird is that like, you know, I had heard for years mm-hmm. from you guys that it was awful and awful. <laughs> so I came in with like the lowest expectations. I, I don't remember saying it was awful. I feel like Justin, was the one who always talked about how bad yeah. it was and I, I will say I did too yeah yeah I will I say know, I enjoyed I, it more on this read oh okay I did think also reading it because I reread it pretty close to seeing the movie also and, and I agree with you Mike that that did make it better for me because I know y'all did the, the movie episode already but um, I, I really it wasn't my favorite Stephen King movie but I did like it a lot as an adaptation I think it made me appreciate the, the groundwork he had laid for all the um alcoholism shining stuff which for me is is the stronger part of the of the novel than than the oh, vampires, which will be totally but yeah, um, yeah. So, th- so i think it, made, it did make me a, the book was an easier read this first time around knowing what was uh what i was getting into and right. also seeing some good really drawn out of it through the film right but hey i gotta say i miss the overlook <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're what are you quoting like that's 
that I, I, I missed the Munchkins. That's, I missed the Munchkins uh, from that's on right. cinema. That's an on cinema yeah. reference. Sorry, um, I knew you were doing something. You gave me the most knowing look after you said that. And I was like, I know the reference. A total you're smarmy scumbag look. That but I let me. But I, no, I actually think it's good that you brought up the general concept of reading it. Like Dan, when did you first read it? Um, right when it came out, I remember my, yeah. the copy I have. First edition, uh, my one of my sisters in law got it for me as a Christmas present. So that had to have been. It came out in 2013, right? Uh, yeah, it was 2013. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, 2013, which means I probably read it that December or in January of 2014, not too long after it came out. Yeah, same. I feel like I read it in early 2014, if not. Actually, you know what? Like, what was the day it came out again? It came out. It was published on. No, or September 24th, 2013. Yeah, it's actually funny you say that because I remember going to the Music Box of Horrors that year and getting back, getting home at like three in the morning and I was so hyped up that I couldn't sleep and I remember reading Doctor Sleep. So I owned it by that point, which was in mid-October, but I don't think I finished it until like January because it was a slow read You know what's me. weird also is what? that I started this book because I couldn't sleep and I was up at like four in the morning and just started reading it in the dark. Oh, wow. Um, with like yeah. a little light on. So in the beginning weird for me is yeah. uh, I read the book and I, I fell asleep. I read it on my Kindle. <laughs> I wish I had a cool first edition like you, Dan, but I read it on my boring Kindle. It was actually one of the first books I ever bought on my Kindle uh, because my Kindle was brand spanking new back then. So I, I don't uh, subscribe to Kindles because I believe in the power of paper. <laughs> And you, have, here, you do have your little copy I with you. I do have you. my copy. I have my... Uh, That's dog-eared. What do we call it? We call it, uh, oh, the Pocket Books Edition. All right. Yeah. Well, mine actually fell apart when I was uh, traveling to New York, so I had to tape it up. So this is actually super glued and taped. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so. didn't you... Didn't you used to do a thing where with it? Were you like yeah. tearing out pages as yes. you read it, and throwing them away? Because I was carrying it like th- that just happened. So when I was reading it, I happened to be traveling nonstop <laughs> around that time, and it's a fucking huge book, and I didn't want to travel around with it. So like I had already finished like half of it, so I'm li- literally carrying around half of a book that I've already finished. So I just ripped it in half. So funny, and carried around this paperback <laughs> with me. So everywhere I'd go, if I was in coffee shops or you know in you know libraries. I'm just giving an example because I don't really hang out in libraries. But um, if I was there, I would just rip out the pages and then find a garbage can and throw them away. So people probably thought it was like some fucking nihilist. Yeah, you like look like a lunatic doing that. But that's really funny. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, my first read was kind of labored. And I think I think I remember I read it. I don't think I like I don't I don't feel like I gave it a good chance when I first read it. I was really snotty about it because I felt so burned. And this might be a good, you know, kind of a good way into it. But we're still going to talk about the history. But like, you know, I feel like it starts so strong. I'm like so into the beginning of that book. Like I love the first like 100 pages almost like it's been on for a while. Strong. Yeah. And I remember I like was really enjoying it. And then once we got to the vampires and once it started focusing on Abra, like and her family and especially her great grandma, I was like, I don't like this at all. You know what it's kind of similar to? Uh, I feel like with the way the promotion behind this book was like, it's very similar to the episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Because when this book was first announced, it was like, oh, this is a sequel to The Shining, which obviously heads turned. And he slowly rolled out and teased it through like, you know, little excerpts on that would be on like uh, Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. And the Entertainment Weekly had the opening with, you know, obviously Mrs. Massey, who's in the, you know, the yep. bathtub and everything. And so it was like, holy shit, this is terrifying. It had nothing like to mention of like the true knot and all this other energy vampire stuff. So it was a little bit like the actual teaser for Phantom Menace, which where it was like, you know, it, it 
teased just the little details to bring you back into Star Wars, and then you actually saw the movie, and you're like, who the fuck are Gungans? What the hell is John, Jar Jar Binks? Why the hell is... Why are we supposed to believe that there are two different Natalie Portman characters? What the hell is going on? So I feel like that that, that might have been sort of the case with this because I mean let's be honest like The Shining is arguably his biggest book of all time I mean even over you know The Stand even over Carrie I would imagine just because of what Stanley Kubrick's movie did for it also just making it into the popular consciousness so like Mm -hmm. to follow that story up I think the hype is always going to be you know bigger than what he was ever going to be able to meet Um, you know just from initial inferences that I can say I do applaud the idea that this is kind of a different type of story. Yeah. And obviously we'll go into it from yeah. there. But, yeah, we'll uh, talk more about know. it later. I, and I guess like like when you say that, it makes me want to like expound on that because that's yeah. the interesting idea that we have here. Yeah. Uh, and I think it also that also ties in with the, with our critiques of the movie in a lot of ways in, in good and bad ways. Yes. Yeah. So, but let's, yeah, let's talk about um, uh, the history of it. Oh, like, oh, Yeah. Let's, for those that uh, haven't read the book and are watching or listening to our fucking podcast, uh, let's do our old tradition. Yes, I forgot about of the old this tradition. synopsis. Look, it's been a while since we've done a book I episode, know, I, at least us, because yeah. I wasn't on the, the, the Dark Tower episode, and I think the previous book episode I was on was uh, Secret Window. So, yeah. so why don't you read the synopsis on your, what do you got? The I got the, it's got a nice little kangaroo, the Pocket Books Fiction Addiction. Uh, addiction. addiction. <laughs> I know one person has addiction in this uh, this story, and uh, Daniel Torrance. So here we go. The Overlook Hotel, where is where his boyhood gift for shine opened a door to hell. Dan Torrance is a man now, but ghosts of the Overlook and his father's legacy of alcoholism and violence kept him drifting for decades. Now, sustained by an AA community in a New Hampshire town... Dan comforts the dying at a nursing home where they call him Dr. Sleep. That's the title of the book. But before his remnant power can fade forever, Dan meets 12-year-old Abra Stone, whose spectacular gift pulls him into an epic war with an otherworldly tribe that reunites. Why are you laughing? Because this is, it sounds ridiculous when you read this thing. When it, it, started, it, it sounds about the shining. This so becomes nothing about the shining. It's so weird. Whose spectacular gift pulls... Like, just read this sentence. Whose spectacular gift pulls him into an epic war with an otherworldly tribe <laughs> that reignites Dan's own demons and summons him to battle for the young girl's soul and survival. This this reads like a Larry Cohen synopsis. Like That's this hilarious. Is, uh, anyway, so that's my synopsis. Uh, Dan, Sorry for you have a first it. edition. Is it the same as the one uh, Mike just read? Here, let's see. I'll search for Otherworldly Tribe. Uh, no, no, oh, <laughs> actually, just... wait, wait, hold on. Listen, first sentence, first sentence. On highways across America, a tribe of people called the True Nod travel uh, in search of sustenance. They look harmless, mostly old, lots of polyester, and married to their RVs. Ooh, sounds great. <laughs> but as Dan Torrance knows, and spunky 12-year-old Abra Stone learns the True Nod are quasi-immortal, living off the, this word still makes me laugh, living off the steam that children with The Shining produce when they're slowly <laughs> tortured to death. Haunted by the inhabitants of the Overlook Hotel, where he spent one horrific childhood year, Dan has been drifting for decades, desperate to shed his father's legacy of despair, alcoholism, and violence. Finally, he settles in a New Hampshire town, an AA community that sustains him, and a job in a nursing home where his remnant shining power provides the crucial finer comfort to the dying. Aided by a prescient cat, he becomes Dr. Sleep. 
They're, they're, making, making, that, they're making that sound like it's more important than it really is. We'll, we'll find out yeah. in the history that, that it is important because it's insane how much he leaned and built this book on. Sorry, Dad, stories. we interrupted. Is, well, this is where, too, then it says, oh, God, then Dan going. meets the, the evanescent Abra Stone, but they already talked about Abra Stone, so it's just weird. Uh, and it is her spectacular gift, the brightest shining ever seen, that reignites Dan's own demons and summons him to a battle for Abra's soul and survival. This is an epic war between good and evil, gory, a gory, glorious story that will thrill the millions of devoted readers of The Shining and satisfy anyone new to this icon in the King Canon. Don't know about that. but yeah. um, <laughs> All right. I'll read mine from my Kindle edition, which I bought back when it came out. Uh, years ago, the haunting of the Overlook Hotel nearly broke young Dan Torrance's sanity as his paranormal gift, known as The Shining, opened a portal. It says poor, but it's portal. Poor. Oh, wait, no, door straight into hell. And even though Dan is all grown up, the ghosts of the Overlook and his father's legacy of alcoholism and violence kept him drifting aimlessly for most of his life. Now, Dan has finally found some order in the chaos by working a local hospice, earning the nickname Dr. Sleep by secretly using his special abilities to comfort the dying and prepare them for the afterlife. But when he unexpectedly meets 12-year-old Abra Stone, who possesses an even more powerful manifestation of The Shining, the two find their lives in sudden jeopardy at the hands of an ageless and murderous nomadic tribe known as the True Knot, reigniting Dan's old demons, own demons, and summoning him to battle for this young girl's soul and survival. I think I like that synopsis the best. Yeah, it's like, you can see like sentences that are used throughout all of them, yeah. but they're just arranged in different yeah. ways. That yeah. one marries the two, the, the kind of two worlds of the novel the best. Like, yeah. like hearing that, you're like, okay, I can see how this is a shining sequel. That's, Where's that, the other two? It's like, what? Steam, huh? <laughs> That's the Flanagan synopsis. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so, yeah, synopsis. What else are we missing before we jump into the history? No, we're here. We're okay, good. Cool. We're, good to, we're allowed to open up the history books. Open up the history books. We're in the library. Oh, wait, yeah. am I mixing up? No, nah, we got you know, We're all in the same vein. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I guess he got his chance. I totally guess he did. Uh, I, ca- I can't do anything for you unless you stop being so goddamn elliptical. Now, just slow down. Tell me the whole story from the beginning. Can you do that? Oh, all right. I think I can do that now. I love that, like, for the history section in this, for the films, we go to Dairy Public Library, but we just don't call it that for the fucking book episodes. We totally should. It's we actually should. a better name. But anyway, um, just to pretend that we're all sitting in the Dairy Public Library and talking about you know, sidewinder. Mike Hanlon's there. Or New Hampshire, you know, whatever. The um, gang's all there. The library policeman's there. The library policeman's there with his Twizzlers. Uh, that's all I know about oh, the story. Um, but, yeah. Well, let's get out of here, guys. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> hey, I'm in, the, I'm in the mood for a good time. I'll stick around. Um, God, that's oh so messed up. All right, I can't make that joke, right? That's not good. I don't know the story, so that's probably a bad problematic joke. So right. where did uh, anyway. <laughs> Dr. Sleep begin? Okay, so... <sighs> It all goes back to his announcement in 2009, you know, during a promotional tour for Under the Dome. uh, He and, you know, he described his idea for a sequel, but it actually goes back a few years before that. So, like, he basically told our pal Anthony Bresnikan, friend of the pod, friend of the pod. uh, He told him in these the Entertainment Weekly interview, um, which, you know, ran right around the time, right before, you know, the book Mm -hmm. dropped. He said, every now and then somebody would ask, whatever happened to Danny? I used to joke around and say, he married Charlie McGee from Firestarter and they had these amazing kids, which is actually the novel that Justin was was hoping hoping for. Um, (laughs) But I did sort of wonder about it. And the other thing people would ask me is, how come his father, Jack Torrance, never tried AA? 
because he was the total dry drunk in the book who never goes anywhere near a meeting. One of the things you hear from people who go into AA or people who have substance use problems is they say it runs in the family. When the sequel idea would pop up in my mind, I would think, now Danny's 20 or now he's 25. I wonder if he's drinking like his father. Finally, I decided, okay, why don't I use that as this in the story and just revisit that whole issue? Like father, like son. Now, here's where it gets really crazy. Uh, because I guess, uh, you know, with you guys reading twice, well, yes. guess what? King, uh, doesn't write a book until uh, he has two ideas. So okay. it looks like there's a lot of dualities in this, uh, uh episode <laughs> of the losers club. Anyway. Um, I mean, there's two ideas in this book for sure. I mean, that's the, two of, two of like what? 45. Um, he says that, so he was, he also says that he was inspired by a true story involving a hospice cat. You might actually like this story, Randall. Meow. Um, Probably five years ago. So there, again, this was in 2013 when he was talking to Anthony about this. So this is probably around 2008. He got this. I saw this piece on one of those morning news shows about a pet cat at a hospice. And according to this story, the cat knew before anyone else when somebody was going to die. The cat would go into the room, curl up on the bed, and the people never seemed to mind. Then those people died. I thought to myself, I want to write a story about that. And then I made the connection with Danny Torrance as an adult working in a hospice. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to write this book. And then he added, the cat had to be there. It always takes two things for me to get going. It's like the cat was has the transmission and Danny was the motor. Uh, the whole sequel idea is really dangerous. I think people have a tendency to approach them with a raised eyebrow. Like, hmm, if this guy is going back to where he was 30 or 35 years ago, he must be low on ideas. He must be touching empty on the old gas gauge, uh, which we know is not true with Stephen King whatsoever. I don't feel that way, but I did feel... In, in this case, it was a real challenge to go back. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that challenge. Yeah. So clearly he had been sitting on this idea for a while. And I imagine based on how he writes, like he probably sits on these ideas and lets them matriculate for a while before he finally executes. Cause his execution is pretty fast mm-hmm. traditionally. Oh yeah. You know, that's interesting. He has a, he has sort of a different origin story, but it's, this is one that he wrote in the afterword. Of oh the okay. book. yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting cause it's sort of like, that's where he was, you know, uh, at one point with it and like the thing that sort of really triggered it but he digs in the afterward into some of the more emotional components mm-hmm. that helped uh, that he sees in retrospect having helped uh, uh, driven it so he says as with under the dome in eleven twenty two sixty three, this was an idea that never quite left my mind every now and then while taking a shower watching a TV show or making a long turnpike drive I would find myself calculating Danny Torrance's age and wondering where he was not to mention his mother one more basically good human being left in Jack Torrance's destructive wake. Wendy and Danny were, in the current parlance, codependents, people bound uh, by ties of love and responsibility to an addicted family member. At some point in 2009, one of my recovering alcoholic friends told me a one-liner that goes like this. When a codependent is drowning, somebody else's life flashes before his eyes. Mm -hmm. That struck me as too true to be funny, and I think it was at that point that Dr. Sleep became inevitable. I had to know. Did I approach the book with trepidation? You better believe it. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. The Shining is one of those novels people always mention, along with Salem's Lot, Pet Cemetery, and It, when they talk about which of my books really scared the bejesus out of them. Plus, of course, there was Stanley Kubrick's movie, which many seem to remember, for reasons I have never quite understood. Ooh, Ooh, shade. As one of the scariest films they've ever seen. And then he says, if you have seen the movie but not read the novel, you should note that Dr. Sleep follows the latter, which is, in my opinion, the capital true history of the Torrance family. Uh, sorry, I said you better believe it like an idiot. Uh, uh, you know, Matt Berry from the What Love We Do him. in the Shadow show. Great comedian. Uh, but in the old 
Dark Place, uh, Garth Margie's Dark Place series, which is amazing, <laughs> and you can watch it on YouTube. He has a line where he once where he goes, "You better believe it," and it like always made me laugh so hard. What if, so. what if Matt? I mean, it, what if Matt Barry played like Danny Turner? <laughs> Wait, so what did you say, Dan? No, I was saying like that sounds like a colloquialism that King would use. You know, like yeah. he's, he always says something. Like, oh, you better believe it. So yeah, and I do think it's interesting that you know he talks about having different ideas, and there are so many ideas in here. And this book mm-hmm. is clearly, and I think it's interesting to read his book now because we've been talking about the books that King was writing straight out of his yes. like sobriety Four past midnight, the wastelands and then uh dark half, like those That's books. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. is like spiritually. In line yeah. It like, is spiritually connected in some ways because especially library policeman is so much. Dan, were you on library policeman? I was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that, that book Sun was dog and library policeman. I think. Yeah. Like that book was so about recovery. Like, yeah. The, oh, the whole thing's like, I mean, he has a few books that I feel like are, metaphor addiction or addiction metaphors for addiction and recovery um but that one especially i feel like yeah in, in all its ugliness well it's also telling that he, this is his first traditional horror book since cell yeah when he published this because you know previous to this was under the dome mm-hmm. um he had done 11 no previous to this i believe was um 11 63 yeah then before that was under the dome you know and those are more sci-fi than yeah. horror than yeah. anything and so I feel like this was his return to horror and what better way to do that than go back to what's arguably, you know, mm-hmm. scariest book. Yeah. At the same time, I would argue this is, and just because we've read a lot of his more recent books and we've talked about them in castle reviews on the podcast, this is where he starts to get more into the YA slant. Yeah. And I think he's pretty self-aware about that. Yeah. Um, because like in one of the, um, uh, you know, in one of the discussions with Anthony, he says, I don't know how to explain it, but there has been the merging of adult young fiction, which is uh, usually about teenagers, and younger kids and adult fiction. And I blame J.K. Rowling, he says with a laugh. Harry Potter books were sold as children's books, but they're books that everybody read. The same is true of the Twilight books. More of the Twilight audience were young women, but still there were a lot of grownups who read that book. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's a pretty telling. Yeah you know, quote there. Absolutely. And honestly, it's like, I remember this book stopped feeling like a Stephen King book once Abra Mm -hmm. came in. And it's not because King doesn't write children. Obviously he writes children, but his children and other books are so vulnerable. And there's something about Abra that is not, it is, she has vulnerability, especially in the book, like more so than in the movie. But like, there is there's a YA quality about her where it's kind of like she's the child is more powerful than everyone else and but like with Charlie McGee and Firestarter where that was the case yeah. she was dangerous yeah like exactly. and it was it was a, a well, threat to others and she was being contained like here it's like she more so is is more in control of her powers yeah. you know yeah I think too because Dan I don't know well I'll save most of this for the characters or when we get into heroes and villains but there's so much in the book of Dan marveling at at how wonderful and powerful she is that yeah. it, it, it's almost like she's not precocious really in her characterization, but it's and he has this weird kind of worship of her that that I think makes it come across as uh, it, it doesn't feel very authentic to me. 
Well, I agree. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the, the problems also kind of goes into what you're saying. And again, we'll talk about this more in the heroes and villains section is that I feel like it explores the powers a little too much. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really liked in his earlier books is like, you know, we know Ellie Creed has some sort of thing, mm-hmm. but she doesn't really know how to wield it, but she just knows that she has it. So she gets the, the they're more notions yeah. than powers. Yeah. That's you a know? good. And it's like that with Danny. Yeah. In the shining. And cause he doesn't really wield it per right. se other than maybe, you know, obviously with bringing um, back, collar in but i, I kind of like that a little bit more because yeah. this feels once you get more specific it it hurts the stakes and then it also um it, it makes it feel more actiony yeah you know it, like, i know what you mean comic, yeah you know? but well it's like it just it, the part of the appeal of danny and the shining is that he's i'm gonna use the word vulnerable again but it's like king was so good at writing like a, a kid who was processing things at an age level much higher yeah. than him, but always couching and never letting us forget the fact that he was like six years old yeah. in that book. And you never forgot that. And mm-hmm. it's not like he was ever using his mind to fight Jack Torrance. Really. He was using it to call Halloran yes. to help. And like he was using it to push away the, the demons. Like those were instincts that children would have, you yeah. know, he wasn't like, cognizant of the weight of his powers and the things that he could do to attack other people and use it and like shoot lightning from his yeah. fingers or whatever. Whereas Abra, like that's sort of the vibe you get where she's kind of like, wow, I have all these powers. Let me like compartmentalize all the different ways that I can use them to uh, benefit myself and other people, you know? And, and it never really superseded the story either. Yeah. You know, like if you look back at the dead zone, which is probably his best drama, uh, the it is drama over the power you know mm-hmm. like you're not sitting there the whole time like him being like oh i gotta go walk over this guy and, yeah and, and the real drama him. of this book is danny yeah it's 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 him getting clean and that's a story that king ropes us into early on mm-hmm. and it's so well done yeah and we'll talk more about it but yeah. it's like it's like uh that's the story. I, that's why I almost felt hoodwinked the first time I read it because I'm just like, I signed up for this story. Yeah, exactly. I want to see Danny in recovery uh, because he. that's not a story I, th- I thought I would want to see, but it's rendered so beautifully in the yeah. first 100, 150 pages that I'm like really on board and I love watching him rebuild his life in this small town. And, and then I'm like, yeah, you can throw in some supernatural things here and there, whatever. But then once we start spending too much time away from Danny and we're digging deep into Abra's life and her family lineage, which ends up being important in ways that I think are dumb but yeah. it's like and then and then we're spending time with these psychic vampires I'm just like wow we are drifting so far from Danny and yeah. from the themes that Danny was bringing you well know? look this is one of the only instances I, I, granted I look I don't I, I don't remember th- this actually happening in past uh, publications with you know some of his past books but he actually this actually was a pulled yeah, uh, I saw that in your notes. Yeah. You know, which is crazy. So, like, um, he actually had asked after, and you know, discussing with David Cronenberg of all people, since we just mentioned the, the yeah. Dead Zone. Um, he had said that, uh, you know, while he was talking um, and promoting uh, Under the Dome, you know, he mentioned two, he, he he this he wrote in the thing. He said, "I mentioned two potential projects while I was on the road. One, a new midworld book, which are what werewolves are called in that lost kingdom, and a sequel to The Shining called Doctor Sleep. Are you interested in reading either of these? If so, which one turns your dial more? We will be counting your votes, and of course, it all means nothing if the muse don't speak." Uh, Dr. Sleep won the poll with 5,861 votes to the win through the keyhole, 5,812, which is pretty close. close. Yeah, so close. Which is crazy because I, you know, and obviously he published one of the keyhole anyway, but it's wild that like, I would imagine like the Shining would just like, would have skyrocketed past it all. But, and the thing is, went through the keyhole came out before Dr. Sleep. Did it really? 
I thought it was after. I can't remember. I, I'm going to look it up. Okay. But you y- keep going. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, look, what's wild is that, you know, if this is his most popular book, he's talking about discussing it. I mean, it was such, I, I vividly remember the headlines on publications that wouldn't even traditionally cover King talking about how he wanted to write a, a sequel to The Shining yep. just because The Shining is yeah. such a big, ubiquitous book. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those numbers right there are pretty interesting and also emblematic of just like the King fan and that like mm-hmm. they are so diehard with the di- the Dark Tower. Like, yeah. And well, there are really two different types it did. of King it fans. It did. went through the keyhole. It came out in 2012. Oh, wow. So and, you did do it uh, first. Yeah, because I remember reading it in the apartment I was living in in 2012. That's a very vivid memory I have. Well, I guess that poll means nothing. <laughs> I guess it does. I guess you can't complain uh, about uh, Trump winning the popular vote either. So it's true. Um, there you, you go. Follow the the votes. Anyway, uh, there, last we tidbit. just got about ten one star reviews from. I know, I'm just joking. <laughs> Come on, we're not going to talk about Trump. Um, uh, so there are some other interesting things about this. Uh, the, the background here. He actually hired a researcher. Yeah. To help him out with, uh, you know, going back to some of the details because I mean. He's writing this book. I imagine he rewrote, reread the, the Shining. Maybe not, but at the same time, he knows that at this point, which is in the early aughts, that the Reddit culture is starting to come up. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't get all the facts yeah. right, he's going to get you know killed. Well, that's why George R. R. Martin has the guy who does that for him. And and uh, King's guy was a guy named Rocky Wood. Rocky Wood. Yeah, that's you a got some competition name. there, Rock and Randall. <laughs> Rock and Randall. Wow. Yeah, so he's from New Zealand. His first book was The Complete, the, uh, the complete Saga Another no, complete guide to the works of Stephen King, which is a six thousand page encyclopedia on the CD-ROM, and it summarizes every story, every character, every place, and every timeline in King's work. Good lord! In-depth information on all two hundred and seventy fiction works by King, twenty-six thousand characters, five thousand places, and all the adaptations from his works to the big, you know, from big screen to the small screen. Uh, maybe we should get him on the pod. Um, <laughs> And he would be a good one. Yeah. So he goes, Rocky Wood was my go-to guy for all things shining. For all things shining. <laughs> providing me with names and dates I had either forgotten or playing got wrong. He also provided reams of info on every recreational vehicle and camper under the sun. The coolest was Rose's Earth Cruiser. We might well say that Rocky could have scaled back on those details also. But uh, <laughs> he go- And then I oh, love this. Those, uh, those, those carny details are great. You know, oh, yeah. Don't them. you love it? I love when they, they talk about them shitting their pants and stuff, too. Um, <laughs> God. And, and eating, the orgies. Yeah, and the orgies and the fucking hot dog with, like, crippled, <laughs> oh. like, like uh, bread that he, they love eat thinking whatever. about the giant from Twin Peaks in an orgy. Yeah, me too. Jesus, <laughs> uh, God. So he and then he says, "The Rock knows my work better than I do myself. Look him up on the web sometime. He's got it going on." That sounds like one of his tweets. Yeah, and calling him the Rock is confusing because that's what he calls Castle Rock. Oh yeah, he does. Maybe what if what if the Rock, his Rock, talks about uh, his other Rock, Castle Rock? So and the then, Rock is busy in the Rock. <laughs> And then Dwayne the Rock Johnson's in and there Dwayne somewhere. The in the movie. <laughs> what if he starred in a in a Castle Rock story? I don't know. I'm Pangborn. like laughing at the idea of Dwayne Johnson like in Castle Rock. Like, son, <laughs> son of Pangborn. <laughs> <laughs> he met a Samoan yeah. woman. Oh <laughs> uh, God. Uh, um, no, that's anyway, fun. Uh, any other history that you want to enlighten? No, us on? I mean this is this that, that was pretty much it. I mean, the, yeah. the, there's there's a lot there. Yeah, I remember the reaction to this book when it came out was pretty mixed. Um, I feel like yeah. it wasn't. But the thing is. I don't feel like my issue with the book is that 
it wasn't just like a retread of The Shining. Yeah. It was, I, and King obviously talked about how he didn't want to just make like a sequel, like a straight sequel, because then people are going to be like, oh, he's out of ideas. Yeah. And the thing is, that's probably what most people wanted yeah. was him to just like have Danny go to the Overlook again, even though it blew up. Like maybe they rebuilt it or something. Which is kind of funny. Which is what Flanagan got to do. Flanagan. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I do remember being really, really excited for this, uh, having not even read The Shining for like, I think, maybe at that point, like over 15 years, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I still was like, I got to get this book. And I remember actually being in one of the bookstores and when the excerpt came out and uh, reading it and it was just like Willy Wonka. I got excited. I ran out. And and then I remember Justin, the old Slugworth, yeah. stopped me. And he was just like, actually, it's not a good book. You shouldn't be reading <laughs> he is the book. ultimate Slugworth <laughs> no, of this no. plot. But I, I just remember hearing his negative, uh, like r- reviewing it and being like, Oh, and then he told me some of the stuffs about it, and I was like, "Yeah, this sounds like shit. Yeah. I'm not going to read it." So I put it off forever. And he, then, he really crushed you know. your dreams, huh? Yeah, yeah, he saved me because honestly, yeah. had I read that, I probably would have been like, "I'm not starting this." You know, I don't. I, I really not, don't want that. Would have. I, I want to. I'm not doing the. I'm not doing the pot. No, I'm just joking. That I, would because I was going to say it would have been like I would have been like I think this is a bad idea. No, um, <laughs> but I probably would have been. I probably would have been a little more averse to like going through like yeah, I want to go back and read all these books chronologically. Right, <laughs> right, so right. Much fun with this one. Um, well, let's venture into the, uh, I think I, I feel a hook pulling at back of my pants. I think it's time to go uh, <laughs> dig into sort of the, some of the themes that we see in Dr. Sleep. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. So, like I said, I think what I really respond to most in this book is the idea of you know basically pulling oneself up from rock bottom and there's like a real personal aspect to this and i think i like i said i am kind of glad we talked about it now because for me this story like like the fact that we're talking about doctor sleep now after we've been talking about dark half uh, library policeman and uh the tommy knockers and misery which are all books that he wrote either in the throes of addiction or fresh off like fresh in sobriety yeah and all of those books deal with those themes about like uh feeling captive by your own desires um losing your identity uh you know changing once you consume a certain substance things like that and also just past traumas like i think that a lot of stephen king's alcoholism is related to and this is i think something that they teach you in AA and something you discuss in AA is the what trauma it is that is sort of wrapped up in your addiction. Yeah, and how that trauma informs the addiction and makes it seem almost fatalist by design. Yes. Where you're like, well, I'm going to get it. Yeah. I'm, it's going to be with me. I'm yep. going to carry the sins of my father forever. Right. You know? and, and that's like a huge thing in Library Policeman because it's all about trauma, like mm-hmm. that whole book is. And, um, and obviously, same with a lot of his other ones too. And I think that See, it's like here you're seeing we're you know a couple decades later and we're seeing that he's still grappling with these yep. themes but he's you know and i think this might be i think one of the exciting things about those earlier king books is that the band-aid or like the wound was still fresh you yeah. know like uh he was still coming he was coming out of rehab he was really raw and when he was writing about these things and that to me is the most interesting part about library policeman because he was processing things in such a raw way and and just like with tommy knockers and misery those were books where he knew he had a problem and he was writing about being directly confronted with that problem and knowing that he was being held captive you know yeah. and that to me is really fascinating here we're 
seem like an older, wiser king. Yes. And yeah. he's reflected on these things. He's been sober for a year. So when he meets guys like uh, Dr. John, like these are, that's like king, you know, mm-hmm. because he is that wiser guy who's helping somebody. But I really love the way that King deals with, uh, you know, not just Danny's trauma from his dad that he's inherited, but also just like, the way that his bad behavior as he's gotten older yeah. continues to ripple throughout his life yeah. and the bad memories will not leave him alone. Yeah. And then and the collateral damage that comes from that, which is rage mm-hmm. and how he almost kind of equates rage with the own shining power in a weird way, like the way, yeah. especially towards the end when he's talking to Abra um, and she walks away from the party and, you know, after she shatters all the, the, the plates, it, the way that it's, it's framed it's almost like at the end you're supposed to go, oh, so you know you're getting a hold of the shining, getting a hold of your own rage, mm-hmm. and obviously that rage for Danny is you know tied to his father, tied to the alcoholism that's that, that's in there. He has a grip on it, and at that point you almost feel as if you know King is speaking, to, you know, from where his perspective is in the you know 2013, right. 2012, or whenever he wrote right. this, you know. So, right. Yeah, I love that, and uh, and then this section. That is on page. Well, it's in my Kindle, so I don't know how much it aligns with all of yours. But well, I, I should read real books. Random. <laughs> <laughs> page yeah, sixty-eight, because I like this this section because it it kind of sums up the complicated nature with which he views his dad, like mm-hmm. in relation to his trauma. So um, when he gets the job, uh, Kingsley basically tells him, "Don't fuck it up." And uh, this little paragraph follows. Yeah. Dan said he wouldn't fuck up, but the extra sincerity he tried to inject into his, into his voice sounded phony to his own ears. He was thinking of his father again, reduced to begging jobs from a wealthy old friend after losing his teaching position in Vermont. It was strange to feel sympathy for a man who had almost killed you, but the sympathy was there. Had people felt it necessary to tell his father not to fuck up? Probably. And Jack Torrance had fucked up anyway, spectacularly. Five stars. Drinking was undoubtedly a part of it, but when you were down, some guys just seemed to feel an urge to walk up your back and plant a foot on your neck instead of helping you to stand. It was lousy, but so much of human nature was. Of course, when you were running with the bottom dogs, what you mostly saw were paws, claws, and assholes. Um, and then somewhere around there, he doesn't he say like a vicious little prick, just like his father mm-hmm. did in like the show, yeah. or he actually thinks yeah. about it or something like yeah. that. And I, I love that. And But to me, it's it, that's like the most compelling theme, and it's what we start with, which is that general sense of... Um, of of I've grown into my father and but I'm self-aware about it and I'm trying to change and I'm fighting to change but I love the way that that king sort of like lingers on his his bottom rung moments yeah. like and obviously I mean they come from a sense of realism yeah well you know, like, like just those, that, those double those double a <laughs> those tri- those you know the aa meetings yeah the, the, there's <laughs> a the, yeah right like there's a there's there's a nuance to them that the rest of the book doesn't really have yeah and well you, the, you, it kind of gets away yeah. from being about addiction at a at a certain point you know I agree. like a, um it, like it's weird once the van i mean on toward the end it comes back to but it re- that middle section when it becomes more about the antagonists it really does I, I feel like all this stuff kind of fades away i mean i guess dan feels the same as a character but i don't know i, th- I think that's part of the, i wonder if that could have been woven through a little bit better like, it, it almost that, feels yeah. like it's not the hook by the end of it you know yeah I mean, Something Absolutely. Else. Because there's definitely moments where he tries to wedge in there that, you know, this is still, uh, you know, a redemption or an alcohol, like, you know, the, a recovery story where he's like, you know, outside the bar 
and he calls John. He's just like, hey, I can see the neon. He's like, I know that place. Get the hell out of there. Yeah. And, so, and then that, that is happening amidst the action. So you're, you have these like subtle reminders that, yeah. you know, Danny is still kind of going through the motions. But that but, was like why I felt hoodwink was because I felt like we were leaving yeah. this story and those themes. Yeah. And because the some of the most moving parts of the book to me and I love and I do like the way King threads this throughout, which is that the way that we keep revisiting um, his hookup with that Deanie girl yeah. and then her kid coming out and seeing the cocaine and saying candy and the fact that you know he senses that they both died and everything yeah. and that sense of guilt and the weight that hangs over him and the, but because as somebody who I, I don't struggle with addiction but I think like in terms of trauma the thing about it is the way that trauma like lingers and the fact the way it like just comes back into your head at any moment yeah. and it shames you it's yeah. like a memory or something from your past that you're really ashamed of and that you're still recovering from and still dealing with it just runs back in your head out of nowhere and yeah. King captures that really well in this one memory that really captures sort of the shame that Danny feels yeah. and, and then the anger at how he's gotten this low which yeah. is one of the reasons why I think a lot of critics were so hard on Flanagan's uh, yeah. adaptation because he kind of abandons that story yeah. a little bit. Well, he um, has to. I, I mean, he has to. Yeah. He does. But I do, I do think he kind of probably welded it back in a little bit. Like, you know, talking to um, Bloody Disgusting's name, you know, Megan Navarro, that was one of her her biggest gripes is that like, she, where did his art go yep. in that sense? Because reading this book, you know, it's funny because I, I, I think like his, I think his guilt is kind of trite mm-hmm. by comparison to say, you know, his father who probably ran over somebody in the yeah. first one. Yeah. And so when he has this <laughs> yeah, like honest omission at the end and everyone's kind of like already like, uh, and they go back to the pizza. Yeah. I kind of was like, I'd go back to the pizza. Yeah. Too. Like, well, like, that's yeah, the thing is like, like, I like, I, I do, I agree with you, but I think that, I think that at the same time, what that accomplishes is how we turn minor it's not minor but like we turn things we make that we give them greater power than they actually have you oh, know totally. because we become so ashamed of a certain moment or a certain time in our lives that you know once we tell somebody else about something that we're so ashamed of they're like that's it you yeah. know but we've built it up in our heads to such a degree oh absolutely and that's what i think and that, i like that yeah that's what it. i think king really gets really well in this and and i think another thing along these same lines um and then i'll i'll turn it over i think is this pervasive sense of feeling sorry for his dad, you know, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think contributes because he's still reckoning with like, because obviously with what he went through, he watched his dad turn into a monster, but he also saw that there was still humanity in his dad. This is what the difference from the movie yeah. is like, there yeah. was still humanity with his dad in the end, which I think is pointed to, because yeah. I think the reason why he w- like leans so hard into that is because the, the public consciousness still thinks of Jack. Yeah. Is just like this. monster. Honestly, I think, well, it, I think King tries in too the movie, hard. Yes. Like, in the movie, it kind of, I mean, and at least I did enjoy the movie, but it kind of doesn't make sense because he's talking about his dad's humanity. I'm like, well, if we're talking about movie Jack Torrance, yep. he really doesn't <laughs> yeah. have any. You're like, like what? Do, do you like, guys, yeah. Oh, you well, go, I was going to ask, like, hook-wise, and, and maybe, even though it is maybe more threaded throughout than I'm giving it credit for, do you think the idea of trauma and addiction and all that stuff does get overrun by the more traditional horror hook of the novel, which, yes. which is these energy vampires because yes. I think that's what because ha- I feel like that's a hook in itself and it just feels weird meshing up with the, the other stuff well and that's well I, again he tries to reconcile these two narratives by mm-hmm. doing the whole like Peter Parker with great power comes great responsibility lesson at the end where he's talking to Abra by the you know the river or whatever and he's like you know you got to learn how to take control of it and you got to do good with it and she at that point has. it seems a little too cheap like yeah. it seems like well you're trying to kind of tie this together and you really can't at that point because yeah. 
it's the, the powers that you've had, you've already kind of glorified these powers in ways because they've defeated evil. Yep. So when you're equating that to like the rage itself, I mean, I guess you can make the argument that it has that, that sort of Peter Parker edge to it, but it just felt cheap because yeah. you're, you know, you started off from a sense of you know, like a real place. So to kind of, co-op this story and say yeah well you know it, it works because we've well done you know this is where we're landing it, it just you know it didn't work for yeah me. Um, so i guess like so dan what sort of themes do you think emerge as the addiction narrative uh you know sort of gets buried what themes do you think emerge from the true knot and from abra's family like what what else sticks out to you like which way do you think the book starts moving once it gets into the middle i mean it's weird because it feels like it gets away from theme in the literary sense, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. it, and, and, and ties itself a little bit more to, I guess maybe not theme, not, not theme, but just uh, YA conventions. Do you yes. know I mean? like, like the convention, it, it becomes more about the, the lore and the mythology of the true knot um, than, than it, than, you know, about, about Dan's journey, about alcoholism and everything. And I, I mean, I don't know, I guess there's, there's maybe a bit in there about, the true not just doing what they need to to survive, just just like anyone else. It, but I don't know that that I don't I wouldn't call that a theme necessarily. Like it feels a little bit undercooked for me. Yeah, but I think it's my problem because it doesn't feel very like the stuff with the energy vampires is that they are vamp they're vampiric, right? Whatever. Yeah, they are vampiric. They are. Yeah, they are. I feel like the stuff with the energy vampires, and maybe it's because we've seen it already by this point. And I, I actually don't love how Wolves of the Kala and um, some of the other books in Dark Tower mythology expound upon the vampire mythology because because like in sam's lot you're like oh they're just vampires you know yep. but then when they have all these different tiers and levels and all this stuff I think floating eyeballs bogged- in their head exactly yeah like they just gets bogged down in mythology a little bit and when it becomes more about the lore or the myth or or whatever what have you it's just hard for me to find theme in that a little bit i, yeah. I don't know did you guys find anything there just within within the culture of the true not <laughs> within I, their tribe yeah <laughs> i thought it was <laughs> I thought it was a weird inverse of what he was exploring with, uh, you know, Barlow and Salem's Lot with the xenophobia coming into the small town. Yeah. I thought it was almost like this, like, sort of um, disgust of nationalism mm-hmm. because the way that he describes them is so in detail of these, the you know, they're, they're so in parallel to... Um, what he actually observed in real life because like when you actually read some of the interviews with, with you know the one we talked about with Anthony Bresnikan he talks at great lengths about how like when he was driving down to Florida with Tabby he would see these type of people and he drew from that experience and when I thought about that in the context of like what the true not is it almost seems as this like this distrust of nationalism in yeah. a weird way so it's almost like this inverse of of Salem's Lot mm-hmm. where they are vampiric and they do suck out the energy and they do tr- they are trying to infiltrate Yep, but it's at uh, you know it's at the you know obviously it's an internal level. Um, the infiltration idea is interesting, and yeah. but also like and the idea that they because the thing is they're so rich and everything like they take over places yeah. and you they're know? entitled to history because they've lived it. Yeah, and so there's that that which you know can have some sort of ties to nationalism because there's that pride that's involved yeah. into it, and there's so. the generational aspect because they're so old and they feed on well they love to feed on children exactly specifically yeah. okay yeah. boomer. Um, yeah right that's a reference to a meme Um, but uh, I also this is weird and this is I might be way off here but I also thought given and this could just be King because he loves to do this is that like all the tech references like with Google Earth IAMing Firefox I thought he might be kind of suggesting that the shine is almost moot in a digital age Hmm. you know like I, I mean that might be kind of going a little too far but like it just seemed to me that that was that there was something there that that the, the sense that like 
Danny's leaning on it big time. Mm-hmm. Aubra's leaning on it. They're still finding each other through, you know, the internet. She yeah. actually has to send him the, the, the email address. Like there is something saying that like, you know, maybe this is, there is some sort of like allusions to like how we all have that sort of power and that there is no mystery to things. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe, maybe that was, I think that's interesting, much, but no, I think that's interesting. Um, I think like, yeah. And I think, uh, how do I phrase this? Like, there is this fear of, I think, especially with the true not too, and maybe this can tie into the tech aspect. Is there is a fear of the future, mm-hmm. uh, and like one of the, if there's one thing that I found really interesting about the true not, and this actually ties into the institute as yeah. well, is that King's villains in his later books they tend to be older people from an older generation whose edifice is crumbling around. Yes, them. and. They're still super evil and super monstrous, but they're also like in the throes of decay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a thing that's going on in the Institute that I found really compelling. And it's also a thing that's happening here because they're getting older and they're yeah. getting sicker and the old ways aren't really working anymore. Yeah. And there is this emphasis on, uh, you know, they, true, the yeah. younger. Wait, what's that, Dan? No, I was going to say, I'm, no, <laughs> it was funny. I was just like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I felt like I wasn't given. <laughs> I feel like I maybe wasn't at, maybe I wasn't digging deep enough with the, with the, not not, enough for real though. Well, honestly reading the Institute, because that was the thing that stood out to me about the Institute, no spoilers, but uh, there is this sort of idea of even at the highest levels of sort of, um, of evil or government or whatever, it's like there are fundamental problems uh, that come from mismanagement. And that to me is, is fascinating. And I find it interesting that King is, is framing his villains this way. And I think you can find that, you know, maybe in his older books too, but it's something that I see emerging a lot uh, in these later ones. So the true not are interesting to me because like in the way that Abra is not interesting to me because I don't see her as, as flawed or as vulnerable or as uh, naive as the kids and say it, yeah. you know, who are so well drawn and so well developed yeah. here. We don't have that. Like we get her as a precocious kid who is extremely powerful mm-hmm. and that's just reeks of YA, you know, yeah. and I want a little more depth, but I think what's, you know, so basically you've got the true not and the younger the children are and the more powerful they are, like the more steam they can get out of them. But there's also addiction and that ties into the addiction issues as they are mirrored. Not that effectively. I don't think, no. but uh with the in, steam with the steam yeah. there, obviously there's an addiction quality to that that they need that to keep going and they can't live without that and whereas dan is overcoming his addiction they're not but the thing is they can't overcome their addiction they need that to yeah. live so it's like the, the parallel doesn't quite work but i do kind of like uh the ways that rose uh, gets more and more frenzied the more she realizes that the steam is running out. Like, that she has these special canisters in her car and they're running out. It's kind of like an alcoholic sort of just being like, I'm running out of booze. Like, I need more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, and I love that. But did you think that, like, the canisters, the only thing I could think of were, like, the TGRI canisters from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> 2? Like... I kept just, thinking of uh, the Jurassic Park, like the, well, this one yes. movie, the way it looks, it looks the like embryos? the Dotson. Yeah, the Dotson. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, it's, it just made me think, and especially when watching it in the movie where it has almost this sort of like kind of cool uh, X Men yeah. Cerebro sort of you know steel canister to it. Where do they get these? Yeah, <laughs> like, I know, right? Like, is there a you know uh, a Lucius Fox to this true knot that's going to be able to like? They're rich enough stuff? that you would think so. <laughs> yeah, I want that character to come in and be like, you know, you guys are. Uh, I got a new canister for you that's yeah. going to have uh, you know some capabilities. You could store it <laughs> in three different levels. And uh, but I do. Uh, I I guess 
I, I find that aspect interesting in how vulnerable King makes the true knots. Oh so, yeah, totally. As powerful as they are, like, and the fact that they all start bailing at the end, mm-hmm. like they all start abandoning her. Oh, they're incredibly ineffectual towards the, right. towards the middle of the book. Actually. Right. And that's like, and then also because in there, oh, and also I'll, I'll, I call a little bit of bullshit because the idea that they start dying because they get the measles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that would have happened by now? Uh, yeah, that I thought about that. <laughs> but then also like, do we, and I guess we could probably move on to the heroes and villains because now we're like actually just talking about it. But yeah, like, yeah, we can. Um, do that, yeah. But I will say, like to that point, like was that really necessary when she's already killing off most of the true not anyway? It was almost like there's too much on the side of like the the Abra Stone and Darian Torrance. I actually for a while started feeling like. Oh, like Rose the Hat doesn't, she's kind of fucked at this point. Like, yeah. like what, what does she have? Like, you know. Well, that's the thing is I never felt like she was ever going to win. No. Like, never. that's where the, and I think, Dan, you mentioned like a lack of stakes, like, or maybe that was you, Mike, but it's like, that's where I felt was I was just like, well, how is, how are Danny and Abra going to kill her? You know, like yeah. the threat, like the real threat is in how powerful they are in, in terms of how much, like, how much influence they have behind the veil. Yeah. You know, the fact that they own all this property and that they have all this money and they have all these connections. It just, it, it like, that's the thing is I like the idea that they're this crumbling edifice, but like, but then they also have all that like behind the scenes power. So it's hard to really buy that. And I guess that's like where I struggle a little bit is like, is like, I wanted to see more of that weight and that thing. Like, is killing Rose really the end of the true knot? They don't I know. really, I mean, they don't really well, they, say they that. They kind of like, it well, like somebody got away. And yeah. But at the same time, like it, the book kind of makes it feel like it is, has been vanquished. Well, maybe it's yeah, like the can... ending of the witches, the movie of it, which is where they like, they, they're some of them become good. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> what if just... another sequel where like, yeah. they're all good now. They're actually good. They now. team up with. Abra. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what were you going to say? Think, well, I think too. Yeah. It's, it's the lack of stakes. And then, so you, you don't really buy into the, the, the conflict and the drama that's exi- that is happening among them. But at the same time, they're not really made to feel threatening or scary. And, right. and a lot of that has to do with how, how King dresses them. <laughs> like, I, don't know, I just pictured, I just pictured like old bumbling carnies, like tipping their fedora hats and stuff. Walking. I mean, it's, I don't know if he actually says that's what they look like, but there, there's something, there's, there's something just kind of feeble and goofy about them just, yeah. just purely aesthetically. And w- which, like you said, would not be a problem if they really leaned into this idea of them fading away and crumbling, you might feel some empathy for them. But instead, I was just like, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like how I think uh, Justin feels about Bill Hodges and the. <laughs> uh, oh, um, I also feel about Bill Hodges. Yeah, just that kind of like the, you know, just, just like the, oh, I'm just a down on my luck kind of. <laughs> there's just like a lot. Yeah, there's like. It's like just such a folksy quality that I hate. And a top hat is never scary. No. Um, well, no, I take it back. Well, there is one scene, and I have one that I that's in cemetery that okay. involves the top hat. I, okay, actually, there is there is there is some stuff early on with how the, with the baseball boy and some other things. I oh, think baseball boy is effective. are pretty terrifying. But I think that has more to do with what's happening rather than their their characterization. I I kept this is like such a dumb obscure reference, but all right, I'll make it quick. So when <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, I knew you were going to Springsteen with this. This is so silly. When he started doing the Tunnel of Love tour in yep. the 80s, um, which was really controversial because he mixed up his stage setup, he wasn't playing hits, and he did this whole carnival motif. Like, no joke, because like, Tunnel of Love is in a carnival ride. So in the beginning, it shows like the entire band walking in, like buying a ticket and going on a carnival <laughs> ride, and then they start playing. And uh, this guy, Terry, I forget his last name, he was like Bruce Springsteen's assistant for a long time. He, he has a song, Terry's Song, about him. He's oh, passed yeah, away yeah. now. But so t- this guy Terry, he plays like the ticket taker, 
and he has this like <laughs> vest on and like a fake cigar and like a you know like a like a bowler that he keeps tipping and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making fun of terry but it's it's more just like that's what i picture the true not looking like like this guy this kind of lame carnival charm like hey yeah you want to do it you I, I don't know why maybe maybe i'm being unfair toward the novel but like i couldn't get that image out of my head both times when, when i read it well, we can discuss more about the True Knot in a section we like to call Heroes and Villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> Welcome to Heroes and Villains, in which we discuss Stephen King's many heroes and villains. And there are some here as well. Since we're on the True Knot, why don't we keep talking about them? I, I kind of want to hear more about Terry, though. Uh, from the first- <laughs> What's his name? Uh, man, Bruce. Uh, it's, he, he died. He, I mean, he wrote the song Terry song. When, he did. Uh, it's on Magic, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah T- Terry McGovern. That's his name. I'll, okay. I'll see if I can find. There's footage of the Tunnel of Love tour. And it's, um, like I said, fine for a Bruce Springsteen concert. But that's not what I want, what my villains being. But who knows? I may have been projecting that onto him. But was was the turnout for you guys as goofy as I, I am thinking they are? I I think he is. And I, and I honestly think that King feels that way, too. I mean, like, throughout the whole goddamn novel, he seems to be so self-aware at how ridiculous this story is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so many points where he, like, has to cop to just how coincidental things are. Mm-hmm. You know, like, at one point, Dan even has to shrug off the, the coincidences. And he's just like, I didn't want to bring up that this was another coincidence. And, I mean, there's literally an entire section of it on... Um, on like page five twelve, five twenty five, um, there the characters, you know, even admit to the the fact that this is so ludicrous. I think like even Doctor John, yeah, like multiple times, it's just like I can't even believe what I'm fucking hearing. And so it's for me, it's like I think a lot of that is more tied to the true knot itself mm-hmm. than actually anything else going on in the story. Because yeah. if it was a little more grounded, I feel like you wouldn't have to make these self aware moments. It does feel happen. like there's a lot of heavy lifting required to connect all these yeah. stories. You know, and I think that's something that bugs me. But so I guess like, but I will say, I mean, I think that I think that once you get past sort of the bluer, the baser qualities of the true knot, the orgies (laughs) and the the dumb costumes and like, can't wait for pound cake. I know the rampant horniness. It's like, it's like, I think Rose the Hat is an interesting character. I think that there's, you know, the agelessness of that character and the confidence of that character that exists is very interesting. And I don't know, like I, I, she annoyed me at first, but I found her to at least be one of the more credible members of the true knot. The rest of them are just painted so often aside from Crow daddy, who is also to me, you know, he at least strikes me as like a good mid-level King villain, but at the same time, there's just so little we know about them. Whereas, uh, whereas like, like we never really get the fully developed, uh, you know, Crow Daddy or the fully it's developed all appearance. Rose. I think yeah, it's problem. all appearance. Yeah. yeah. And like so many of them are just described as being like slovenly, like, you know, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I just make sure all like motor scooters, like, pull, like, I don't know. I mean, at the, it just, it, it, it yeah, just, just like kind of, it almost, it was almost like South Park's idea of, of what old people are like or something. Yes. You know? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know that's like horrible, but I, that's, I just can't picture that as, as like, yeah, walk around with canes and stuff. Now, there's anything wrong with that. And you can make those things scary, but I think because it was so rude and aesthetic and nothing else, it's you know, yeah, yeah they're not. 
Right. Well, like, I mean, hell, even Pennywise is, is very developed than, than most of them. Well, I think for me, like, I think one of the things I liked about the movie was that when you cast someone like Carol Struckier in, in, uh, as Grandpa Flick in the movie, this, like, seven-foot, four, four-inch guy. Yeah. Uh, the from, uh, from Gerald's Game also, right? Yeah, he's in and, Gerald's Game yeah. as well. Fascinating actor, and I think that when you do that, then, okay, that's the kind of villain that... I find interesting in this world. If this is like a traveling band of sideshow carny people, at least give me like uh, somebody who is larger than life, you know, somebody who isn't defined by a silly costume and being horny all the time. Like I like the aesthetic uh, of the true not as they exist in uh, the film. Yes. And, they're uh, much better. Yeah. Much and better, like, yeah. and I even buy like Rose's top hat because I think they really sell it in that opening scene with the little girl. But then you've got Grandpa Flick, who's, you know, you cast this great actor, this really striking, visually striking actor in it. And then Crow Daddy, you've got Zane McLarnon, who's an excellent actor. And then also there's so much distinctive about him. Yeah. So it's like the casting was so on point. I mean, aside. Uh, Flanagan doesn't do much to develop anyone beyond those three, no, really. No. But Which like he doesn't need. To. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Well, there's I mean, the, I like the, the, the rat rattlesnake. The yeah, cool. I was gonna say the girl in the movie theater is interesting. But I, I actually even like outlined a section in this book, and my notes are: this is a perfect summation of the lunacy of this book, um, and it's on page 488 of obviously the pocketbooks edition. Um, and this is the line that begins chapter seven of this section. Steamhead Steve, Baba the Red, Bent Dick, and or Bent yeah, Bent Dick and Greedy G were playing a desultory game of canasta in the bounder that Greedy and Dirty Phil shared when the shrieks began. Is this a and James Joyce novel? I was like, what the fuck am I reading? Is this Finnegan's like, Wake? This it's just a bunch of nonsense. It's like a Tom, like an old Tom Waits song. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. Like, but like, how do you not read that and go, what the fuck am I reading? And this is on page 488 so clearly he has you know you're in it at that point but even then there's just so many sections of this novel where i'm reading it and i'm just like oof king i love I you love but you i are... love to steamhead steve like i think the, yeah. the constant use of the word steam and i think i just kept thinking about the video game platform like, yeah like steam games. they're all but, gamers and, and i guess i guess you know he's saying He's equating it to being addicted to it the way he would heroin, like, oh, he's a hot pet. But Steamheads, it sounds like a fucking locomotive or something. They're all yeah. Steamheads, well, that's, too. To like, your what, point, why does he get that name? Well, yeah, exactly. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, he, he really likes this. He like, Shining like Dan. Than, yeah, um, I know. But, uh, <laughs> Shining Shining Dan. Dan. but the thing, that, the, like, the thing that's, that's to your point, Randall, is that like, so if you're seeing these characters on screen and you're not seeing their fucking idiotic names <laughs> every second they talk there's a difference there i agree you know, like when I i'm agree. reading these and being like oh well bent dick said this and you know oh here comes you know greedy g makes me laugh like, more than bent dick even. greedy g it's like a rapper yeah exactly like who, who are these people it's like a really like, bad rapper like, yeah, they just become bob or you know dan you know bill or you know I mean, going back to hey, going back to the Springsteen uh, uh, connection, like in, in like early Springsteen, like that song "Spirit in the Night." It's it's like me and Crazy Jane they make. It, <laughs> it sounds like it's these like random ass cartoon names. I was hoping that Outlaw Pete would come out, uh, which is a latter day <laughs> yeah, reference to that's Springsteen. The gunslinger. Yeah, yeah. Oh my Man. god! But yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, it's it's just that part makes it very hard. Yeah, it really does, and and it doesn't help that like. They're they're so endowed in 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 sexual you know in sexuality and being promiscuous and and just being just like 
disgusting fucking people. Like, I mean, he goes out of his way and I'm going to go pull up the sections real quick, but it's on like when page, page 189, he goes so out of his way to show just how disgusting it is. It's like, you know, at one point, like someone's like, it's all about the toilets, darling. The caca sucker don't come until Thursday. Good Lord. Or, you know, or it's like in one hand in a bright red strappy undershirt in one. Uh, no, no. He was like, this is what he says. Mr. Cozy opened it eventually. He was a small man with a big belly and currently encased in a bright red strappy undershirt. In one hand, he held a can of Paps Blue Ribbon. In another hand was a mustard-smeared brat wrapped in a slice of spongy white bread. Like, fucking Christ, I don't want to be with these people. <laughs> I know. It's unpleasant. And I think and I think that there's like... I think it's the thing is like... Um, you know, when we start with Dan... It all feels so gritty and real, you know? Yes, I mean, well, when we start in the... And we'll talk more about, like, the the prologue, I guess. Like, when we actually see Danny with Halloran. Like, some of that stuff for me is in the word processor and in, like, yeah, oh, totally. the cemetery and stuff. Like, sort of those early things. But then once we get into him as an adult, there's a gritty quality to it that I find very authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, the Him bottoming out and everything. There's that yeah. There's that story about him, like, sleeping under the bridge. Yeah. Which you're, like, for yeah. a you know for a a 30 30 something 40 something guy that's like so sad and so rough you know and then when he gets to that town the way that he characterizes billy and a lot of the other guys there's such a warmth to it this train Mm -hmm. is there it's a small town it's like i love these king narratives where people sort of enter into these small towns to sort of reinvent themselves which is a trope he uses he uses it in the institute oh yeah the institute opens forever yeah and i love it i love that kind of thing about this it's like an old american dream kind mm-hmm. of idea which is that no matter what you've done in your past no matter what you can wander into a small town and rebuild your yeah. life which is probably at this point in time not real anymore no. but no, i yeah. love this sort of like i love the the warmth and the kindness and sort of the the hard fought redemption that comes with that whole bit and i love the way he characterizes the town the aa meetings uh mm-hmm. danny's relationships with like billy and the other guys the work that he does the hospice work it's like also interesting and then and there's such like a cool vibe to it that feels like king and then suddenly <laughs> we're on the road with the other people we get and sleazy it's like, bumper stickers but it's and like yeah it's like, it's like and... the whole the whole vibe changes and I mean, you can cha- obviously change vibes in a book. Like you want the vibe of a chapter to like mirror the people, but it's like, and it doesn't, it's not like it needs to be pleasant, but there's something. So it's like, it's like the whole vibe is pound cake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it feels that way. It's like, and it's not just the sex stuff. It's just the general gumminess, like the general grossness of it all. Like the fact that ev- nobody, it, it just feels like it needs a shower, the entire thing. And then you've got the other vibe of like the whole Abra story, yeah. which feels like we're seeing the origin story for a superhero. Well, it's, it's idealized in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's this idealized kind of thing. Yeah. But the way you paint this right now is kind of, I think his conceit, like, sure. I, I feel, cause he talks about how, you know, he describes the people almost like that, you know, he writes that America is this living body, you know, yeah. and like the highways are the arteries and, and he almost sees them like as a virus mm-hmm. of sorts. And so like in his conception of this, as I mentioned before, came from his drives back, you know, to and from, from Maine to Florida. Mm-hmm. And his disdain is so, is so like indicative in these quotes. It's, this is from the Bresnikan interview also. Um, Driving back and forth from Maine to Florida, which I do twice a year, I'm always seeing all these recreational vehicles, the bounders in the Winnebago's. I always think to myself, who is in those things? You pass them a thousand times at rest stops. They're always the ones wearing the shirts that say, God does not deduct from a lifespan time tra- time spent fishing. I fucked that one up. Uh, they're always lined up at the McDonald's, slowing the whole line down. And I always thought to myself, <laughs> 
myself. There's something really sinister about these people because they're so unobtrusive yet so pervasive. I just wanted to use that. It would be the perfect way to travel around America and be unobtrusive if you were really some sort of awful creature. And I agree with them. I think that's like a smart idea. Yeah. And I like that you could, you know, using that, we were discussing how like there's this real gross, gnarly juxtaposition that they do feel like the virus that this book tries to posit. However, you also have to spend time with that virus and <laughs> you but get also, sick it's like, and you start coughing. It also, it feels inauthentic. It does. Like, I think that's what it comes down They're to. Cartoons. And I think, yeah, cartoony is a great word. Yeah. Like, I think that's like my issue is when I say like the juxtaposition and the, the different vibes, I'm like, you know, I know in my head, I'm just like, that's not a bad thing. That is actually a good thing because he's, he's yeah. really trying to cultivate the world, but it just feels so inauthentic. It mm-hmm. feels like he's trying so hard yeah. to make it gross and he's yeah. trying so hard to make it alienating for us as a reader. And, but the the thing is like a there's a i mean i love king but there's a little bit of classism there like is. in the oh, way he's totally talking about is. these people but at the same time i also get annoyed when i'm at a you know by the people who hold up lines of in course. fast food restaurants because you know they they're 50 and they still haven't learned how to like order at somewhere although i do like the idea of king being in a mcdonald's and being annoyed yeah. at somebody for holding up the line I just want to get a quarter pounder <laughs> <laughs> but like i i think that I think that maybe his disdain for this class of people uh, kind of bleeds through in ways that make it cartoony. It lacks mm-hmm. the it lacks the intimacy, the vulnerability, the uh, empathy that he usually has for his characters. You and, know? and it kind of connects with the way that he views a lot of the conservatives on Twitter right now. Oh yeah. And granted, look, I hate them also, but they, they come <laughs> got, from this got like ten more one star reviews. Yeah, I'm sure they, they <laughs> you know they all yes, but. But the, the way I, that he, I didn't he, vote for Trump, but I don't like you guys discussing politics. <laughs> he always says that. Yeah, it's hilarious. Um, but, but the <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that like that the way that he 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 paints the other side is in such you know drastic broad strokes in the same way that he does with the you know the the true not here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if there was that sort of and again it's like that nationalism that I'm talking about before. I'm wondering if that's something that did get to him. Yeah. Where he's just like this is sort. Of, I mean, nationalism has been around forever, obviously, but I don't know. Was this? I feel like this is pre-nationalism becoming used as a term as much as as it is today. Like, do you think that kind of like? Well, think about the th- well, to think about the Tea Party. I mean, not to get on the politics. Yeah, I don't want to lose our no, followers true, and stuff. <laughs> but. Yeah, 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 I mean, I think that I think that the divide pre-Trump was there. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. look, this was this was yeah, published in the second yeah. you know term for Obama. Yeah. We can't go down this road because people are going to fucking lose their minds with us. But either way, it was there for sure. But I, I don't. I agree with you. Dan. I, I don't know if it was that embellished as it is today. Um, but I do but see it ties. His mind. Like, yeah. Even, even people he's seeing in the South. I mean, a lot. I mean, let's be real, right? A lot of them probably would be affiliated with that in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, we'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, where do we? I mean, to that, to that, you know, that note, I think. Rose the Hat is is similarly a, a you know kind of um, unjustified with you know with, with her as a villain as well. I mean, like, yeah. she's just painted as this sex object most of the time. Yeah, I mean, like what depth do you really get other than the fact that she's supposed to have these powers? She wants to get you know she wants this MacGuffin, which is Abra. Um, and I guess the depth for me comes from I and I don't think there's a lot. There's no but I, I would say that like, like her and Crow Daddy were the ones I at least found somewhat interesting. Yeah, Crow Daddy because too, he but... embodies and this is more of an archetypal thing. I love Crow Daddy because he embodies my one of my favorite king archetypes, which is like the mid level heavy. Yeah. Like the villain behind beneath the villain. Yeah. You know? And that's like obviously I've talked about bullies on this on this podcast a gazillion times, but that's sort of the role that Henry Bowers occupies mm-hmm. and Buddy Rupperton occupies. Like those characters, like where they are or like even Lloyd Head 
can read. They are like uh, the the right hand of the villains yeah. in a lot of yeah. ways. And I like those characters because I tend to find them to be, you know, deceptively interesting. And, uh, and Crow Daddy is definitely interesting in yeah. that respect, for sure. Yeah, but we still don't get that much. And you don't get any real but relationship. But with Rose, I think for part. me, the, the depth starts to come later when you see the desperation yes. uh, and the fear of losing the steam, losing the people, the whole edifice crumbling. The idea that the walls are closing in on her, even if that does lower the stakes somewhat because I never really felt like she was ever a threat. I do at the same time, like I find that an interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. character dynamic. And I guess that's where my interest in Rose like came from at least later in the book, early in the book. I really am just like, but you know, I know. although I, I find Snakebite Andy like I almost wish that we spent more time with her oh, as a person like pre vampire yeah. yeah. because the scene of her with the guy in the movie theater is really cool. It's yeah. like really interesting and it's a really neat way to show that the shining has multiple kind of uh, arms like you can use it for evil, yeah. you know, and I love that kind of concept of, of this woman who uses it for more nefarious purposes. Although, I mean, she's killing uh, like pedophiles basically yeah but she's also well she, is she killing them i can't remember or she no she scratch she leaves this the, the mark on them so that they have to live remember right. forever so i guess she's yeah, not even yeah. really using it for evil rob pedophiles i don't give a shit yeah but it's like uh but there is something darker about her that i find interesting and i feel like it's one of those instances where because snake by andy wasn't immortal she was just a human with like with a normal story uh well quasi immortal to quote the synopsis uh <laughs> we actually learn more about her past and her upbringing than we do about anybody else in the true not like we get glimpses to like how far back the history of the true not goes but we don't get intimate character details like we do with andy yeah and that's one of the reasons i get bummed out because snake bite andy's character almost functions just to show the process of turning someone oh, that's, into the yeah. vampire and then she kind of just drops off yeah you know she's she's around she's part of like the climax and everything and when she dies it's an event but it's more of an event in the movie yeah. than it is in the she's, book she's literally ellen page from inception in yeah this book. which is a bummer because i find her out of the true not to be the most interesting i do too yeah. and which is why when she perishes it's actually affecting because you're like oh i wish we i, I do wish you were able to stick around a little bit more yeah you know, but it's and, like it's like the empathy's not there because we didn't spend enough time with her, but like the, the sadness of her dying is like, oh, I would have liked more from yes, that character, exactly. you know? Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of like an issue with Latter-day King for me. Uh, I've noticed this in the Institute too. And I guess when I say Latter-day King, it's like, I'm not talking about 1122 no, God, or no, no, Under no. the Dome, which are no. like two books I absolutely love. And characters are just really... Yeah, they're so vividly drawn. It's yeah. like, I just think about the Institute and uh, Elevation and... Um, uh, the Outsider, those are books that I like, but, well, not Elevation, but, like, these are books that I like, but I just, the characters aren't as rich as they could be. Like, the v- villains, mm-hmm. especially, I want them to be, like, more imposing. Yeah. I want them to be, ha- carry more layers, to embody more archetypes. I want them to, like, do all the things that King villains used to do, whereas, you know, because then I think about Under the Dome, where you've got Junior, who's, like, to me, like, one of the oh, best like king classic king character oh right? i love him. he's such a he's great so character like just so so fucking evil but to man. be fair two of those books were manuscripts from like the 70s, i know right you know i know so but... i wonder if there were you know there, those the, the diamonds were already there. the diamonds were already know? there um well, i guess should we should we get off the true knot yeah let's get off the true knot and let's yeah. talk about you mean the, the good i knot. think we need to refer to them as the, as the true uh, from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> the true knot <laughs> did they say is that what he calls in the book right yeah the true the true yeah. hey the true yeah. one of our listeners got mad at us and he said like you guys aren't even down with with the true are you or something like that like and in the like, comments no, it just made me really. laugh i was like not really sorry yeah um, <laughs> what but, about so what about the uh what would, what would be the opposite the the false uh un, unlaced 
<laughs> the false unlaced sneakers. The false yeah. untied shoelace. Uh, yeah. Well, why don't we talk about uh, some of Danny's like buddies? Yeah. Because I think we, th- we talked a lot about Danny already. I think that, yeah. that's pretty good. I mean, we can probably know? we'll touch on Danny more as we talk about him in relation okay. now, to. Now with uh, buddies, do you are you referring to his uh, his contemporaries or his ghost friends? From, uh, <laughs> oh, his ghosties. His ghosties. I think uh, I think I'm actually interested because. Uh, one of Billy. the things I liked about the movie was that there was a lot of like streamlining yeah, totally. uh, in terms of yeah. the way that the yeah. friends get involved. It's uh like there's there's a bit of insomnia. I'm gonna make a little insomnia reference here. A book that I think I would I would stand for over most people on the pod because I do like that book. But there's a bit that I always found really dumb, which is like uh, Ralph, the main character, like bonds with this pharmacist named Joe, like early in the book, and then later in the book, like for pretty much no reason, like Joe becomes like part of the climax. Like he's just there because I think King liked writing him, and he yeah. just shows up. Like he's driving a car with like one of the characters <laughs> with like one of the the main characters in it, and then I just remember Ralph going, "Joe, how did you get involved?" <laughs> It's kind of like that Seinfeld episode where uh, Jerry's in the confessional booth and uh, he's talking to the priest and the priest is like, doesn't like his joke. And then all of a sudden he turns and then George is like, Jerry, I need to talk to you. Yeah. Like, How the hell did you find him? And I guess like, I guess for me, I, I actually quite like Dr. John and Billy and who's the guy who is like his sponsor, Casey. I believe it's. Oh, Casey. that's right. Because in the movie, they fold. They fold all they that. Fold into yeah, they well, fold which is smart to be honest. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. But I'd say in the book, I like those characters in terms of of being a support system for Danny. I mm-hmm. think, and they're part of the narrative that I really yeah. respond to in the book, which, which is Danny's recovery. Which in a, in a case where someone's getting sober and going to meetings and everything, it probably wouldn't just be one guy like it right. is in the movie. No. Me, you would have a whole network of that. Which and, and right. I think I just think that suits a book a little bit better than it does. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that King would have gone all, full our town and just like would have just spent like three hundred pages with like I would have been into know, that. different sections of this town. Yeah, like, lots kind of like that for a yeah, while. Yeah, that's like exactly like yeah. I love I love the the ensemble pieces and so like. I enjoy in the book. I like spending time with Billy. I like spending time with John, but at the same time, I don't need them to be part of the adventure. No, no, <laughs> like, not at all. They're always like in the car and driving around with Danny. Like, and they, I they, like they that they cut nothing. all that in the book. Yeah. And they like they, one person drives, which Danny could have te- technically done. Although they yeah. make the, uh, the, I mean, King goes at great lengths and great pains to explain that like, well, if we have two people, we could make this trip over, you know, overnight. And, you know, this is why I'm here and, mm-hmm. uh, and all this other stuff. But yeah, for me, it, I, I do prefer the way that Flanagan streamlines this all in the end because like Dr. John at, at some point becomes just totally ineffective. It's like, yeah, because you're like, right. His advi- advice is just like, yeah, it's crazy, but hey, I believe him. You know, it's yep. just, yeah, well, well that points to one of my that, bigger so. issues with the book, which is that there's a lot of redundancy in this yes. book. There's a lot of uh, explaining yes, the same things thing. to characters like Abra's parents, mm-hmm. Dr. John, Billy, that the same explanations keep happening. And I remember like getting so mad. I'm like, King, you could have cut 75 yeah. pages out of this book if you didn't reiterate everything over yeah. and over again. And I, cause I was getting so annoyed. I'm like, I have to sit here and watch them explain this to Abra's parents. And Abra's parents are not well-developed characters. Oh, they're they're awful. very boring characters. Yeah. They, they're at the same level as the guy in the dark Knight. That's just like, why aren't we talking about this? <laughs> like, that's, they're, they're literally, they're literally, they're, they're, what a weird like thing to pull because they're just, all they are, they're, they're fixtures to keep the plot moving yeah. and like, ask the right questions. Yeah. And like for me, it's like that's that's such a boring fucking thing to read. And especially as you're mentioning, like I, I don't need to read this again. Let's just keep this going. Yeah. You know, and your other other, you know, there are other more important characters that you can devote time to. Yeah. And and I guess if 
I don't know if we're talking about like the you know the, the Stone family yet, but like this revelation that you get at the end that they're related has absolutely real no uh, bearing yeah. on the story whatsoever, other than to be like a shock value thing in the climax. Like, I know. Well, I think we can talk about them. A, yeah, it feels just so happenstance too. And I, mm-hmm. I guess the argument could be for like oh, cause of wheel, everything's connected or whatever, but. It just feels like such a tacked on thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, well, just yeah, look how but... Flanagan completely excised. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it's like fast. There, there wasn't even yeah, there wasn't even really the appearance or like the haunting of it because uh, they they cast a woman of color or a girl of color to play uh, to play Tadaro. Avra. So yeah. it's just kind of like and even Dave. Yeah, yeah. And so it to me was just kind of like I I kind of appreciated Flanagan just being like yeah we don't need that. And then uh, but I have, but I will say I like in the in the movie that they actually kill. Abra's dad, because yes. it ups the stakes. Well, that's man. the thing. There's yeah, big stakes. Man. Yeah, like you're like like nobody dies. Yeah, like that made Crow Daddy infinitely scarier because he yes. jammed a knife in his chest. Yeah, and we don't Mike get, said like, Mike said before because I asked you guys before seeing the movie. I'm like, well, how how closely does he adhere to the book? I knew that the Overlook would still be around because they'd showed it and everything. But I'm like, is it just the same finale just transports to the Overlook? And I I think it was you, Mike, was said that oh the the whole third act is different. There's way more stakes and. Because, yeah, the, the book does deflate a little bit for me once we get to that ending. Even though we're on this, like, what, campsite or whatever that mm-hmm. is where the Overlook was. Like, everything just feels kind of far apart and not and, and just like a little a little lumpy you know the, the, the thing um, that the thing that i kept thinking about because obviously the overlook is a character itself so that falls into heroes and villains but you could just <laughs> reading this book you could tell that like king so wishes the hotel was still there mm-hmm. because oh, oh wow there's a a, there's a lodge. Yeah, there's like a hotel. He has to make up a, a building that wasn't really there yeah. in the original book. I because... almost wonder why he didn't just have. I mean, you still have the ghosts are theoretically. Well, some of them that aren't locked in lockboxes are still supposed to be around. I almost wonder why it couldn't be some kind of spectral projection or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or like mm-hmm. they get transported back, back to the spirit realm of the overlook. I mean, this supposed to have supernatural qualities. Um, you know, you, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, like he 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 does it to an extent. I mean, he finds ways to get the overlook in there, but yeah, it's just not. Not quite the same. Like, because just, place in this camera. But just think about the, even the final showdown. Like you're on some deck. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing really like it, it's so X many. Yeah. Like you're on the Statue of Liberty or some sort and of it like just has, boat. It just has no resonance. I no. mean, like you can tell us a million times that we're where the Overlook once stood, yeah. but we're not in the Overlook, so it's not exactly. the same. And so I, I did like the idea image. And I'm sorry for jumping around, but now that if we are talking about that area, but like if like when Ghost Jack. Uh, comes around and it's almost like he's like looking out and seeing like oh, this is a good view or like that you know like <laughs> we'll talk more about that later yeah. I definitely have that quote uh, written yeah, down yeah, yeah. and so uh, yeah I guess for me I think I like Billy I like the the AA guys a lot more in the book and I but I also like in the film how they're they're pared down mm-hmm. especially hey you get Bruce Greenwood as Dr. John hey man Hunkle, uh, that's that's money in the bank right there it is money in the bank and <laughs> more say- Bruce Bruce Green back because uh, <laughs> We always, we always rake in the cash. And get a little but I guess I just get annoyed in the book that they're always there for like yes. all the supernatural aspects of it, which I'm like, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. And uh, also like the priorities are kind of fucked. Like, you know, so Dave is so worried about like telling his wife, uh, like Lucy, about the fact that like oh, I lied to her and now she's our marriage is going to go crazy. And it's like, dude, your fucking girl, you know, your yeah, daughter is That was kidnapped. bizarre. Why are you worried about this? And then like Lucy's getting all upset about like ridiculous shit that even after all the stuff that had already been told to her it just was like who are these characters yeah like they're they're so like one note they're Mm -hmm. so surface level and yet 
we're supposed to have this big revelation with them. I mean, yeah. like even like the the connection that she's supposed to have um, with Danny Torrance when they're talking about the family tree. It's so um, it's just so exposition driven that like there is no real depth to the discussion, and neither there is is there any depth to their bond. Well, so, what do we think about Conchetta? Oh yeah, I mean. Oh, the, the what the grandmother, great grandmother, great grandmother. Yeah, uh, I maybe wouldn't have minded it as much if we didn't have to spend like ten pages yeah. on her past, yes. which I do not care about yeah. in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, like that was. I think I remember when I was like, "What book am I reading now?" You know, and the fact that we kept coming back to that character, I'm like, I do not care about this character because she's not even linked to the whole Torrance thing either. Yeah, yeah. So what the hell is going on? It's, just, it's about it's, another grandma, the, the other grandmother. And then he just uses it as like, oh, she becomes like a weapon. Yeah, that he uses later to like kill off a bunch of the not people, which is just bizarre. Yeah, like when, what, like when you just... talk about when you talk about like 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 dissecting the shining, like some like like uh, deconstructing the shining and and the lore and and taking the mystery away from it. That's a good example yeah. where it's like, so what? He's sucking up this woman's essence and then spitting it out at these yeah. people, and then it like kills all of them. It's like what? Yeah. Like that is so. Dumb. It's like an RPG. Yeah. Like I have to go to the hospital to get this. Oh my this God. Serum. You're totally right. So then I could go over to Sidewinder and, you mm-hmm. know, kill Rose the Hat. It's so strange. Yeah, it's and it's strange. like, we just spend, I don't know. And I just feel like so much of this book could have just been chop, 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 chop. Yeah. Like you could have cut it well, down it's so just, much. It's just over because it's actually, it's funny because even though it, it is tied to, like you said, King's most famous book, it's a, it's a fairly small story i think you know what i mean yeah. like like as far as like the, the quest and the you know just what the main characters are trying to do and it's a, but it's a small story with a lot of characters and i think that having one more especially in that prominent role just makes it feel overcrowded a little yeah, bit like you think about the dead, the dead zone which is similarly well i mean it's kind of small in scale but it becomes about assassinating this guy who you know is going to maybe destroy the world but with that i mean it, it keeps things pretty small and dead zone's a little bit different because johnny's kind of jumping from place to place exactly it's a little more episodic yeah yeah and with conchetta i just feel it just yeah she feels she feels like a device but also like a device that's not really needed and there's a million other ways you can well well, it's like i'm a huge fan of ensemble king like i love like i think about needful things i think about salem's light i think about under the dome i love these books where like we spend time with all these different people and watch them all coalesce into one but it's like here i am I'm. I just. It's just one of those instances where these other characters are not interesting, no. and they're all too tied. Like you know, when you just have like they they all depend on their relationship to Abra and Danny, yep. and that's fine. Like they exist. They they don't. Their individual lives serve no purpose. Don't inform the story. They exist only as they exist as you know arms of of Abra and Danny. So I sit there and I'm just kind of like. Well, that's fine, but we're spending way too much time with them then. Do you know what you summarize, though? What? Pretty much every YA novel. Yeah. Where you have these that's two true. lovers or two lead characters or two kids, and you have these superfluous fucking parents and superfluous <laughs> friends that make Not all YA. We sequel. shouldn't trash YA. Yeah, in I'm general. not going to trash all YA. There, it's, 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 there's good YA. There's some good YA. Lots of good YA. But there's a lot of, like, you know. If I, we trash I, YA, the YA authors will come at us on Twitter. I know. If you've been in the news lately. I do think that a lot of them, and you could just even see this in the movies, is that they all, you know, exist strictly to serve the narrative of those two you know main protagonists and a lot of the times they are just like 
background fodder. Yeah. And most of the time it's, I only recognize this because I actually only recognize the fucking actors and actresses who are playing these characters yeah. because most of the time I don't really actually even know who some of the younger stars that are playing these leads. God, I sound like an old person. Well, lest but, we get a bunch of one star reviews, we do like why yeah. it has some issues, but I think it points to what we like about Stephen King, which is that usually yeah. the main characters uh, are just one of many interesting yeah. journeys that we see throughout yeah. King books. And those are the best King books are the ones yeah. that give us like, like, like you, I think the way you phrased it that I always love was like, he's so good at writing short stories within books, yes. you know? Yeah. And those short stories always feed into the larger narrative. Yeah. And a lot of those those short stories, the people that emerge from them often end up playing like really interesting pivotal side roles. You know, you just think of like when you think about King, you think about character yeah. and that's what's so great about it. You don't think about like the main character often, like who, who reads Salem's lot and comes away saying Ben Mears is my favorite character. No, you know? no, I, you I, love I it because you love the ensemble of it. Yeah. And so here, I think that what we're saying is, is like these He's side the characters stories. are just lacking. They're, they're not very interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's it's telling in the sense that like most of this heroes and villains section is us just summarizing different sects, you know, or <laughs> tribes, uh, shall I say? Well, should we talk about uh, like the way Halloran manifests in here, the way Wendy manifests in here a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. like I I think that for the most part, it's it's kind of interesting that we there was so much debate about whether or not Halloran has to be alive oh. because he's pretty much like a ghost for the most part in all this story anyway. The debate about him being alive had to do with whether it was a sequel to The Shining the yeah. book or Shining the movie. Oh, I know, but I mean, but even in the, the end, right? but even in the yeah. book, he kind of st- kind of feels almost like a spiritual presence more than an yeah. actual real character ever. Yeah, that that's true. Even when and he's, he's kind of he's not there, he's not there for a lot of the time. Too. No. Yeah, and it is anticlimactic when Danny's like, I need to talk to Halloran and then he's like, oh, he died like 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> whereas in the in the whereas in the movie it works really well oh, in the I sense that he appears you know yeah. in, in that way although i will say is it is it through the patient that halloran speaks to him yeah that's a great scene it's a cool scene i love yeah. that yeah yeah and so i actually quite like how halloran manifests here and i like him as a spiritual presence yeah. um i think that it's a little hokey but i think it works yeah. in the context of this and and you know i think it does I, the idea that he's alive in the books it does warm my heart that he carries on having this relationship with danny and he yeah. still mentors him uh you know after they leave the overlook and everything yeah like as much as as much as the shining you know is great because it exists in this claustrophobic space i actually will say like i i love that intro i love the the prologue and seeing them outside of the overlook living uh you know engaging and danny sort of trying to readjust to life after that you know it does broaden the story in an interesting way well, for me yeah and it connects with the ending of the shining you yeah because that's we do that's where we do we left them you yeah know? um always remind me of the ending of jurassic park for some reason oh yeah where they're like hanging out by the pool yeah and, like, i remember away that from the park, park and everything yeah. um and then they hear about the you know the chickens in the in the woods and stuff like that but either way i i do I, I do love these sections even more so than just strictly nostalgic purposes, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause there are definitely nostalgia definitely factors in the idea of like, Oh, we get to see some of these older characters yeah. and see where they went and everything. But I wish we spent more time with Wendy. I do um, too. But yeah. it's still, you know, it still works. It, it's like, well, just because we learned so little about like how she died and, you know, what really happened to her, we hear yeah. a little bit about it, but I would really like to know like what she was going through. And I do like that the book, Danny sort of reckons with that. He reckons with the fact that his mom was kind of ruined by Jack, you know, and how sad that is. A better book is you don't have opera. Yeah. You don't have any of these stories, you know, these, these true, not um, scumbags. And uh, (laughs) you don't have, you just basically have Danny working, you know, 
at the you know at the, the at the house um and he's having to kind of deal with his own de- like his own mother's death and yeah. like you know he's able to help all these people at the hospice and yet he can't get over the fact that he couldn't help his mother yeah and you could have all these great flashbacks that go you know you know into the past and also have some sort of shine moments and have mm-hmm. you know you could still have horror elements to it but have it more, you know, lean into the drama- dramatic tendencies. Because if that was one of King's strong suits in the early aughts here or the early teens, then that might have warranted a better book also. And it yeah. also would have far, been far more structured too. I mean, like, this book is goes all over the fucking place. And it's just, it's telling that, like we were saying, that it's a small story, but there it's so patchy and there's just so much of it. And it's so, it's all over the place. It's all across the nation. It's this, this... You know, it's not classic King in the sense that it's you know mm-hmm. centrally located to certain places and small towns. It's all across a bunch of small towns, and I think that had he maybe focused on the grief that he felt from his mother dying and not being able to do it, might have warranted a better book. I mean, I, yeah, I, that's one thing that is a criticism. Yeah, I I wish that the the sequel to Shining had reckoned more with Wendy uh, than w- what we eventually get. Yeah, you know, yeah. so yeah. I don't know. Um, Dan, how did you, how did you like uh, visiting with Dick Halloran again? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's such a blanket praise for me to make, but all the shining stuff in the book, I think is handed, handled really, really, really well. Um, I, I mean, I wish there's more of it to be honest. And I think it, it is, I, I think King uses that as a gateway without succumbing to fan service in a really nice way. Um, I mean, I do, <laughs> I do agree with you that his, his death does feel a little like anticlimactic, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you, guys, do you guys think that was, honestly, do you think it was to match it up with the movie in case they were going to make and that a film adaptation, like, do you think that was going through his head all across? No, I think he just realized that Dick was way too old. Yeah, like if he wanted yeah, he Danny to be in his forties, that would put Dick like in his like hundreds. You know, I wish he was like yeah. Professor X, where he could just live till he's like you know, ninety <laughs> years old. Or yeah. Well, I remember reading it the first time, and I was just like, wait, is he really gonna like? Is Dick really gonna be alive still? Like, I, I was, yeah, it just would have cracked me. It could have been like, yeah. you know, you need to help her, Danny. Some, <laughs> someone will come along. Someone has come along. Or what if it's like we got a new patient? <laughs> it's Doc. It's, it's Dick Halloran. It's Dick Halloran. Oh my God! He's I can't like believe Dan- the coincidence. He's like Danny. Before you usher me to death, we need to have one last adventure. <laughs> and, he, and he opens the fridge and it's ice cream. I knew you was coming. <laughs> but, but like, uh, but yeah, no, I I, re- I really like the. Uh, I, I don't know. I like the implementation of all the shining stuff in in the book. Um, I mean, I don't know, it makes sense that we get away from it at a certain point, you know. But for me, all of, I mean, Danny's demons, right? They come directly from the hotel. Yeah. Um, and I know that I know the novel isn't necessarily about him conquering alcoholism because we he kind of does that. I don't know the first third of it or whatever else. But I know I think they're good. They're just good vehicles for the past and demons and like how a child would deal with would deal with trauma. And I think I think King handles all that really elegantly, actually, mm-hmm. and very complexly mm-hmm. too. I feel like the. I don't know the go the he sort of demystifies the ghosts a little bit like they're still scary but it, it, it I like how it shows how an adult would deal with that as opposed yes, to a child and exactly. that actually makes them flex it makes them not just it makes them not just ghouls it makes them uh, <laughs> it, it really makes them feel like tied to Danny's psychology in a way that I that I think the vampires never do and, mm-hmm. and for Abra also too like I, I don't think I don't I don't think the vamp I don't know maybe he's trying to draw some some parallels between how he learned to deal with the, the ghosts from the overlook with, with how Ira could learn to deal with the vampires, but it never feels, it never quite feels synced up. So no, I, no. I because they're still there. Yeah. You know? no, like exactly. in the sense, you know, but 
Um, I, 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 you, you missed a chance to go from ghouls to fools. <laughs> I will say, um, they're no more, they're no more ghouls than they are fools. Uh, I could see like Vincent Price well, coming out. Well, as we're wrapping up Heroes and Villains, do we have anything more to say about Abra? I mean, she's a major character, and I think that. I think that it's not that I find Abra like, you know, I don't want likability to enter into this because that's always dumb. But, you know, I find her to be, you know, like the word spunky was used in one of the in one of the synopses, which is a little silly. But she is like a lively presence. Like she's not boring. It's just that you find you made a face when I said that. I I find her confusing because first off, again, and this goes into the self-awareness of it all, but. King has to take, you know, so many you know, delicate steps to make it seem as if this is not some sort of like pederast. Or, oh, or we, between, I have, I have stuff know, about that later with, uh, you know, between Danny and, and, and yeah, Abra. And then once you finally get there, then you have to contend with like, well, it's weird. And the parents now have to understand it. So it's again, it's like this sort of redundancy. So like because of that, you're only ever really getting that that sort of like surface level friendship there's two and granted by the end of it you do feel like they have some sort of connection but like not really like i i never really i mean i feel like honestly i feel like you know danny and dick in the short amount of time they have have more of a connection than danny oh and, i agree and Aubrey here and yeah. they're fucking related for christ's sake so like yeah I, I, and also like king just you know king struggles sometimes right kids and like in this one she comes off so like like quote unquote badass like they're trying to like make her so like quote unquote badass and like even like in weird scenes where she's like talking to rose the hat mm-hmm. i can't really believe that she's like a young kid yeah either. And like it, when it, she's all sassy like yeah. when she's always throwing out like the and there's there's a lot of like i think i have that in in mm-hmm. one of my sections but uh there's a, there's a lot of people just yelling like fuck you at each yes. other in this or like fuck off yeah. you know and i'm just like like um, bitch girl, bitch yeah, girl. little bitch girl. And it's, like Ra- it's like Rob Zombie dialogue. Yeah, it's it like Rob Zombie yeah. dialogue. Fuck, you, fuck off, fuck you, fuck you. Ah. And I'm just kind of like, you're better than this king. Like I know you say things, like, you write things like Jahoobies, but it's and like he does in this book. He does it, say it makes a comeback. Yeah, we have it. Oh God, he clap an eye to you. Was it the finest <laughs> Jahoobies to clap an eye to? <laughs> <laughs> God, uh, oh, Lawrence Crack. Never forget anything else uh, about characters within this. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess like the only the, I wanted to pull out the one thing with the uh, the Aubrey thing with the dialogue, but I, I I don't really have to, I guess, because it's just oh, the, the, oh, this is gonna be a misery. I'm saving it for misery. Save it for which, misery. Well, that's where we're going next. Oh my god, really? Yeah, I'm feeling a little miserable. I think it's time to head to Annie Wilkes' place in Colorado because oh, it's, uh, it's time Season for misery. <laughs> she she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away. Welcome to Misery. This is a section, and if we feel trust that we're going to be talking about more positive things in a little bit, uh, Misery, though, is the section where we kind of talk about some of the things that we find a little sillier uh, in this book. This isn't Pound Cake. Pound Cake is where we talk about, well, I guess that's the really silly stuff. Misery is the stuff that just made us miserable. Just made it miserable. Just like, yeah. what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, does anybody want to begin? Um, well, I, I guess I'll lay this off. I, yeah, there, are just, there are just points of dialogue that just felt atrocious to me. Uh, to the point where, like, I could believe I was actually even reading King. Um, you know, there's a part where uh, Rose, it's on page 541, um, again, of the pocketbooks. <laughs> um, 
where they they're basically like Rose and Abra are are kind of talking about are talking to each other on the phone and Abra literally details like this like whole Shakespearean back and forth uh-huh. but then goes to the lengths to show and talk about how she knows about the Shakespearean quote as if anyone would ever like say well I heard this quote from my teacher and oh my yeah teacher that told was me bizarre this. I mean, like, look at this. this is insane it's like you know um yeah, oh God, it's just it's it's ridiculous. It's like the crow knew Shakespeare. The bitch girl said he quoted some to me not too long before I killed him. I know a little too because we had a Shakespeare unit in school. We only read one play, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. But Mrs. Franklin gave us a printout with a whole list of famous lines from his other plays, things like "to be or not to be," and it was Greek to me. Did you know those were from Shakespeare? I didn't. Didn't? Uh, don't you know? Don't you think that's interesting? It's like shut. What? Why are point. you saying all of it, this? It, it's it's one of those moments King has every now and then where you're just like, wow, they're really. He's really letting her go on for a while. <laughs> like, yeah, like, just, like, you'll, you'll just get to these stretches where characters are talking. They do it in stand a lot. They're just talking for a really long time. Go, wow. I, I just like, feel like the ending if, of Wayne's World too. Imagine Kylie Curran had to say that. I Dr. know. Sleep. Oh my God, it would be insufferable. Like, uh, I just have to say, I can't believe we didn't lead off Misery with what might be one of the most miserable moments in all of King. Which is the fact yeah. that Baby Avra predicts nine eleven? Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> we should have. I, I, I do have that. I do have I that on here. Um, the ridiculous nine uh, eleven prediction, which is, and not only does she predict it, but then Rose the Hat and the True Knot are literally watching it unfold live. Mm-hmm. Also, which I guess they would have some sort of notion to know that they could, could kind of suck out steam from the yeah, there you go, the ashes and whatever. But no, like I have the quote is so funny. But like, oh. so basically, the parents both have a dream about it, like where they see like written on her. Yeah, it's, it's like it's ri- eleven. Yeah, yeah like, I have the I I got the section if you want to. Like, yeah, it's on page one twelve. Um. And like, uh, let me look it up real quick because it is like ridiculous. And I just like, so the baby's like sobbing, like they, it won't stop crying and they don't know why. So they bring it to the uh, hospital and the doctors can't figure it out either. And so it's this like endless thing. But then they have these dreams or maybe it was the night before they had the dreams where they saw like nine and 11 written on. Yeah. yeah. But Abra lay on the floor. She was naked. Her eyes swimming with tears, stared at her mother, written on her chest in what looked like blood was the number 11. Oh god. And then later on it's like Aro is naked written on her chest was the number 175. And then they make, you know, the connection based on all the numbers that happen. But yeah, cuz like just- when somebody says I just wrote down the quote, a passenger jet hit the World Trade Center, Dalton said, and no one thinks it was an accident. That was American Airlines flight 11. United Air- Airlines flight 175 stuck in the Trade Center South Tower 17 minutes later at 9:03 oh, wow. a.m. At 9.03, Abra Stone abruptly stopped crying. By 9.04, she was sound asleep. It's like, what are you oh, doing? Oh, God. And this is 2012, well, 2013. Yeah. Like, maybe this was forgivable in like 2003 when everyone was trying to do like 9-11 narratives. Trying to process right it. Stuff, but like, oof. It was very strange. Yeah. Uh, other misery. I've, uh, I've got one. This is toward the end of the book. This is, this is my, I don't know. I'm questioning how bad this is. I just kind of flagged it because it reminded me of the... Uh, some some of the assembly scenes in the stand and like the meeting scenes where remember in the stand there's a lot of uh cracking jill like that we will stew and then hearty laughter you know <laughs> yeah there's one at the end here in the uh it's toward the very end of the book on 514 um that dan's at an aa meeting uh okay so here he's going forward to take his chip uh the crowd applauded as dan walked forward slowly to keep pace with casey who now walked with the cane John handed Casey the medallion with 15 print on its face, and Casey held it up so the crowd could see it. I never thought this guy could make it, he said, because he was AA from the start. 
by which I mean an asshole with attitude. They laughed, <laughs> and then they go, they laughed dutifully at this oldie. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's definitely not as bad as uh, as as Abra predicting nine eleven, but um, I, don't know, I, just, I just so I, it doesn't even bother me really. Just I, I always laugh at those, yeah, like the folksy, like <laughs> like, like just the crowd being really supportive toward everything. I guess they would at an AA meeting, but I don't know, just. I got flashbacks to uh, to this to the we will stew. <laughs> we will stew. Um, I have a oh, line yeah. of dialogue. I can't or a line. I can't remember. It's something Danny's thinking. I can't remember exactly what the context of it is. I just wrote this down. But it says maybe we can become pen pals. Sure, and maybe a cabal of Victoria's Secret lingerie yes! models would crack the secret of hydrogen fusion. <laughs> yes, I had that. T- I was like, what the fuck? What Weird. are you doing? It's so strange. Oh God, yeah, that that was bad. And then also, like, there's this weird, like, sort of hallmarky, um, like NBC's "This Is Us" bullshit thing where they're like, they're you know, Dan's basically talking to um, all his pals uh, back in uh, New Hampshire, and they're all like, you know, um, like, oh God, this is so. No relationships to the first year. That's the rule of thumb. Casey said, very few recovering alkies take it seriously. You did, but Dano. It's time you got regular with somebody. It's just like, it's like God, are you, are, you, are you literally writing for like Hallmark Channel at this point? There's, maybe that's me a little bit of an overstretch or whatever. But. Well, along with, if we're going to talk about Hallmark dialogue, uh, when after the, the great grandma dies, somebody comes in and they're like all worked up and Dan just goes, lower your voice, Dan said without turning, you're in the presence of death. Yeah. And I'm just like, and A, it's that's like, Garth that's like a Garth Marenghi line. I know it is like a Garth Marenghi line. And like, this is like her daughter, like the, the, the great yeah. grandma's or like granddaughter or whatever. Yeah. And so it's like, don't be an asshole to her. She just yeah. lost her great grandma. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> She's allowed to yell a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, like, uh, Howling how for the, wait, what? Hey, hold on one second. Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this Jesus place. Jesus ain't got nothing to do with this place. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's another great bit. This is uh, kind of along the lines of the Victoria's Secret lingerie models. It's just one of those sections where you're just like, this has no purpose being here. Yeah. Uh, Dan was sitting in the waiting room, leafing through a copy of OK with Prince William and his pretty but skinny <laughs> new bride on the cover when he heard a lusty cry of pain from down the hall. Ten minutes later, Fellerton came out and sat down beside Dan. He looked at the cover of OK and said, that guy may be heir to the British throne, but he's going to be bald as a nine ball by the time he's 40. Yeah, I didn't, so, I didn't appreciate that. It's just like um, all this, it's just like hey all man. this shaming in a tiny little place. Pretty as but skinny. Who, as a man who's going bald himself, I, yeah, I, I do not like that side king. It was just bizarre. <laughs> it was just bizarre and it doesn't mean, like, like there's a lot of pop culture in this <laughs> that doesn't need to be, uh, you know, in here. My, my, my girlfriend uh, takes great offense of uh, the, the Shrek mobile that happens to be in here for, yeah. uh, for no reason. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and the, just, yeah, the, the true, not the true. They, they know a lot about pop. I mean, do. I guess they would. They're, they're old. So, but oh it's, my God. It's still Crow, Harry Potter yeah, Crow knows Harry Potter. He, oh, I had it written down somewhere on here. Like, that is, yeah, definitely hip to pop culture. He knows about Amy Winehouse. And then he, I think he also does a Golem reference, too. <laughs> like, I like... Uh, in terms of bad dialogue, I also have, um, so instead of bargaining or betting or begging, she screamed defiance down at them. Fuck you. Fuck you both. The girl's terrible smile widened. Oh no. She said, you're the one who's fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Uh. What is that? And then there's like the phrase uniquely variable talent, like was in a line of dialogue. And I, I just wrote in all caps, people do not talk like this. No, no. And then I think we all need to talk about the way that, well, okay, two things. King's weird commentary on looks has always been a thing. Like we always talk about that. But yeah, uh, swim in. 
<laughs> yeah, and uh, but he describes Abra here as pretty but not beautiful, mm-hmm. which is just it's weird when you're writing about a 12 year old girl. Yeah. It's weird. Mm-hmm. And I actually had to say at one point, like I wrote in my notes, I just said, uh, stop talking about how pretty children are. Yeah. <laughs> and I wrote because it's like every character needs to be described as to how the, if they are beautiful or not in kind of a, in a broader sense, I mean, you know, and it's always a little bit weird and it's especially weird when you're doing it about children. Yeah. And he does it like about one of um, Abra's friends too, mm-hmm. like who's like a, a preteen yeah. and it's just weird. And that ties into the sort of, like weird way that King handles um, Danny and Abra's relationship. Cause obviously it is weird. Yeah. Cause he's a lot older than her and yeah. she's a child. Well, but so th- it's good that they're self-aware about it. A little they're bit, self-aware but... about it, but I remember that there's this bit and I, 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 I was trying, I'm trying to bring up the quote, but I can't find it right. Exactly. But it's like when, Danny first shows up and talks to Dave, like mm-hmm. Avra's dad, and he's try and like he does a thing like it's not it's not bad or whatever. But then when he starts to explain, he's just like, so basically, she messaged me on the computer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's immediately like you're saying all the worst things. Yeah. and I think there's like a reference to Catch a Predator. Like there, at one point, I think so. Yeah, which yeah, one of my favorite well, they made shows that of all line about about it being cre- oh, this is cre- they, they they kind of allude to it being creepy like when they first meet, you know. Um, but it's still, it's like it's like the Jerome thing in Mr. Mercedes, right? It's like just because you're alluding to it, it doesn't mean that it it doesn't feel right. Like, you're still, weird. it's like clearly it's still part of the fabric of it, and I just think he sort of obsesses over it a little too much. Yeah, like, he does. Uh, he points to it so often that it starts. It's like a I don't know. It just starts to get weird. Yeah, but I mean, are you surprised when like literally like the second or third adjective to describe any woman is always what? is the, what the like what's their breasts like yeah i mean it's literally every female character so it's and that's bizarre. you know and i think a lot of that is just because you know he cut his teeth and a lot of men you know like magazines that are catered to men mm-hmm. and so Adam lot, and cavalier and all those yeah i mean they're like pulpy magazines that he were, you know he was writing pulpy stories for so i think it's always just gonna be in his dna um so I, I try to pull my punches a little bit too much when I, when I say that stuff. But like at this point, you know, later on in your career, and especially as you mentioned with like dealing with kids, you got to, it's, you know, mm-hmm. got to wash out uh, a little bit. So um, I'm getting a little cold. Yeah. I think, I, I think, are we getting, is that the, the cemetery? It is the cemetery. Oh. Let's go inside. <laughs> What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes. That is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Okay, welcome to the cemetery. This is where... I think this is a section you've all been waiting for. Oh, yeah. Uh, This is where we talk about the spookiest things, the creepiest Mm -hmm. things, the stuff that got under our skin throughout uh, this book. And I actually have quite a bit. Um, I do, too. I know. I feel like we've been ragging on the book, but Hannah does have some pretty creepy moments, especially in that first first stretch, I think. Agreed. Does anyone want to kick it off? Do I go for Dan? Go for it. I got one. Um, So this this whole sequence is, is pretty freaky. This is after one of their their feedings, but um, this is just a really subtle thing. It's on page 100 at the end of chapter two. It says, talk about the true, the true, not the true, uh, (laughs) getting back on their travels. At four o'clock, they troop back to their encampment in the parking lot, invigorated. They would return the next day and the day after that and the day after that. They would return until the good steam was exhausted and then they would move on again. 
By then, Grandpa Flick's white hair would have become iron gray, and he would no longer need the wheelchair. Like, not it's not super graphic, but I I, I actually think that's like a nice a nice subtle uh, little trip to the cemetery. Uh, mm-hmm. Just talking about, and I, I I think when the steam is talked about in those kind of terms, it's a little bit more palatable to me. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just like it doesn't get too bogged down in mythology or details. So that that was one that I picked up. But uh, yeah, what about yeah, you guys? Yeah, I think right up at the top, I got one, and this is just it's it's a little bit it's. It's a little bit much in the way that King can be sometimes, but I still find it kind of effective. It's when Dick is talking about his grandpa, yes. who he calls Black Grandpa, and basically he dies, and and uh, Danny asks, when did he come back? Uh, and then I'll, I'll read from here. Dick dragged deep on his cigarette and exhaled smoke through a smile. You didn't need to peek inside my head to get that, did you? Nope. Six months later, I come home from school one day, and he was laying naked on my bed with his half-rotted prick all reared up. He said, you come on and sit on this, dicky bird. You give me a 1000 and I'll give you 2000 I screamed, but there was no one to hear it. My ma and my pa, they was both working. My ma in a restaurant and my dad at a printing press. I ran out and slammed the door, and I heard Black Grandpa get up, thump, and cross the room. Thump, thump, thump. And what I heard next, fingernails, Danny said in a voice that was hardly there, scratching on the door. That's right. I didn't go in again until that night when my mom and my pa were both home. He was gone, but there were leavings. So that whole section to me was really unnerving. And then later, you know, there's more of it that goes on. But that section to me, like, I don't know. He talks more about seeing his grandpa and like his he was like he had a zipper open. His dick was hanging out. It's just like it's really gruesome shit, especially when you frame it like that. This is springing from a part of his mind from when he was a little kid, you know, especially like the way that he describes, um, you know, black grandpa's ways at the dinner table too, with the pudding and the putting the cigarettes in. It's just like so gross. It reminds me of like something from like nothing but trouble or something. It's just like this like foul sort of behavior even mm-hmm. in life. Yeah. And then to when you get to that, finally, you're like, oh, God, this would be an awful ghost. Yeah. Because this guy, this guy's just, like, absolutely terrifying. And one of the things that, you, you know, you, the let the leavings is interesting because I don't recall. I mean, obviously, there are artifacts all across the, the mm-hmm. Overlook. But, like, the idea of the residue yeah. being, like, like That's a really creepy something part really of, creepy. of Miss, uh, Miss Massey. Massey. Yeah. Like, the fact that she leaves, like, slime. Mm-hmm. Ugh, it's so gross. Oh, God. One of, my, one of the sections I have is... Could actually almost be con- you know construed as a, a word process of the gods, but uh, this is on page eighty six. This is when uh, Danny's walking um, walking home around Fraser. Uh, the sky had scummed over with clouds. Billy looked up at them and sighed. I hope to God it don't show and blow as hard as the radio says, but it probably will. I found you some boots. They don't look like much, but at least they match. Dan took the boots with him when he walked across town to his new accommodations. By then the wind was picking up and day was growing dark. That morning Fraser had felt on the edge of summer. This evening, the air held the face-freezing dampness of the coming snow. The side streets were deserted, and the houses buttoned up. Dan turned the corner from Moorhead Street onto Elliot and paused, blowing down the sidewalk, attended by a skeletal scutter of last year's autumnal leaves, was his battered top hat, such as a magician might wear, or maybe an actor in an old musical comedy, he thought. Looking at it made him feel cold in his bones, because it wasn't there. Not really. Mm-hmm. Like, oof. Yeah, yeah. that's good writing. Creepy. Yeah. yeah. Dan, do you have another? Yeah, yeah well, I, I don't have to read it, but um, just the whole killing of, of uh, oh, the yeah. baseball boy. Yeah, I, mean, that, it's, uh, I mean, it's only two pages. I won't read it, but it's in um, in the first edition pages 166 and 7. Um, and I don't know, that's it's weird because even like in that moment to me, the true knot is really terrifying. Oh, but, absolutely. But I'm almost not seeing them like 
I do the rest of the novel, if that makes sense, you know, um, because, like they, they almost feel like different characters to me. Um, and, you know, they just talk about the boy lasting a long time and they actually went pretty, I mean, the movie too, they went pretty far with that. I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was happy they did that because I feel like it's so vital to, yeah. um, you know, even though they talk about greedy G in the middle of it, it still works. Yeah. <laughs> greedy G placed a knife into one of these greedy G placed, placed a knife. Um, they talk about the kids, the kids, he screamed until his vocal cords ruptured yeah, that's and his cries up. became husky barks. Uh, that's really, that's, that's so unnerving to me. And then, and then just at the end, at dawn, they buried the boy's body. Then they moved on. I mean, I, th- I think, I think the, the horror and the strength of this book comes from when King is being really economical with his language. I mean, you could say that for a lot of his novels, I think. And, and just the, the fact that they really are treating this little kid like food. I mean, they're, they're yeah. viewing him as meat, nothing else. And so that, I mean, yeah, that, that sequence really does still get to me but it's funny because it, it i do feel like most of the cemetery stuff is pretty front load in this book there's a lot of it oh yeah but i feel like i had like almost nothing from the, the second half i don't think yeah i got i would say another one that is relate this is an early one but it's related to uh the baseball boy because it's the transformation of andy and i just think there's like some sections in it that to me uh really worked for me and so uh, it's when they're all chanting around her and she's like right at the beginning of the transformation. And um, But Andy lost track of it there. The silvery stuff settled over her face and it was cold, cold. When she inhaled, it came to some sort of tenebrous life and began screaming inside her. A child made of mist, whether boy or girl she didn't know, was struggling to get away, but someone was cutting. Rose was cutting while the others stood close around her in a knot, shining down a dozen flashlights, illuminating a slow motion murder. Andy tried to bolt up from the recliner, but she had no body to bolt with. Her body was gone. Where it had been was only pain in the shape of a human being, the pain of the child's dying and of her own. And that to me was like good writing, spooky. And uh, just the general idea of the dozen flashlights like all around her is like really disorienting and really freaky. I love that. Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciated here, going back to what you were saying before, with you know him exercising a little restraint, are in just like the quieter moments. Um, I really liked a lot of the stuff with just Dan being on his own, and as I mentioned with my previous anecdote, um, and this one is, uh, it's a section I, I don't want to read it all, I guess, but it's on page ninety-two, and it's like when he wakes up for a second time in the middle of the night, and he sees that there's nobody in the bed, um, and. The, the wind's blowing, you know, outside, and, and yet he still feels there's a presence. Um, I'll just read the ending section. Uh, he went to the bathroom, then whirled, and looked back, as if expecting to surprise someone. There was just the bed, with the covers now lying on the floor at the foot. He turned on the lights over the sink, splashed his face with cold water, and sat down on the closed lid of the commode, taking long breaths, one after the other. He thought about getting up and grabbing a cigarette from the back, laying the, like beside the book on the room's bedside table, but his legs felt rubbery, and he wasn't sure they'd hold him. Not yet, anyway. So he sat. He could see the bed, and the bed was empty. The whole room was empty. No problem there. Only, it didn't feel empty. Not yet. When it did, he supposed he would go back to bed, but not to sleep, for this night sleep was done. Because there's been so many, like, that's that's part of the reason why I think Hereditary is so scary. Because it captures yeah. that feeling of, like, when you're in the darkness and you know that there, you can see that there's nothing there. But, it like, your mind is just impressing upon the fact that, like, something is there. Mm-hmm. And I guess in this sense, it's just Abra, so it's not really scary in hindsight. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, well, I guess it's kind of still early off. So it might not be Abra. It might actually just be his uh, the spiritual presence. But, yeah, that the little things like that got to me. Because that's one of the reasons why The Shining was so scary to me in the first 
first place. It's the stuff that you don't see. It's the stuff that you think about later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that definitely chilled me. Uh, did you have any other Dan? No, that's it. I think that's it for me. I mean, um, I think there are little things within all the, but I think we highlighted all the good, the good sections. Oh, you know? I, I had one more. Um, I thought it was actually kind of creepy the way Abra played the Beatles at night and like the par- parents could hear it in the bed, like downstairs. Uh huh. Like how you just heard the piano start playing and Abra's still upstairs. Like, just putting myself in their position um, and just knowing that this piano is playing automatically downstairs. It's just terrifying to me. Even yeah. if it's a great song by the Beatles, but um, and then also just the idea that, and this is just chilling because I had a, um, a grandmother who had Alzheimer's, but like when uh, Danny's visiting Eleanor, that's what I have up. And, oh yeah. You got, you got it with like, the, well, I, yeah, but you say what you like with like the it. visitors, like the idea that he couldn't distinguish whether or not like he actually had visit, she actually had visitors if she was just having like, mm-hmm. you know, her Alzheimer's and their memories and, or if there were actually ghosts that were visiting her at night and, and yeah, which is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Like. She says they are passing even now an endless parade of them. They smile, they bow, a child wags his tongue like a dog's tail. Some of them speak. Um, and that to me is like super freaky. So she's talking about, uh, yeah, the ghost she's seeing, and Danny doesn't know what she's talking about. And then later, he kind of senses he sees the the ghost passing through the wall, you know, in yeah. the in the place. And that to yeah. me is is such a freaky, resonant moment. It's like, but it's like haunting in a very elegant sort of. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's like spectral, you know. Yeah. And there's something yeah. really like lovely about it, while also being really unnerving. It reminds me of uh, <laughs> kind of like the scene in Ghostbusters too. When it's like, oh, the Titanic arrived, and then you see like all these yeah. like, people walking. I always thought that was really eerie. Yeah, I did too. And then, uh, uh, and, and it's played for laughs too. Yeah, Aaron is there and stuff. But, but even, um, even in the like the library ghost from the first one yes. before, you know, obviously it's scary when she yells, but just like sort of her just standing, she's looking at the book. Yeah, yeah, looking at the book and shushing is very like it's always been yeah. eerie and like yeah. freaky to me. So yeah, uh, any other visits to the cemetery? Not I said. Yeah, I think that's that was what I got. Like you said, Dan, a lot of it's really front loaded, but there are a couple of good sections later on. But I think for me, the real kind of terror kind of goes away after the baseball boy, because that to me is like the high point of kind of the uh, I wouldn't say the high point of the horror, maybe. But it is it is it genuinely left me feeling like unnerved. Yeah. And uh, it's good writing on King's part. Well, then, now that we've spooked ourselves, why don't we uh, comfort ourselves with chicken soup for the word processor of the soul's (laughs) (laughs) soul? Uh, Let's go there. Yeah. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? So this is the section where we talk about bits of writing that we thought were really lovely. And I actually have quite a bit here as well. Mm-hmm. What do you guys have? I've got on page the the one I I mean yeah there is there's some there's some good writing here no but um the one I the one I I, fly, I picked out was uh, I guess from the it's the first half of the book um just because I want to make sure we had some stuff about Dan's alcoholism which I I think I mean it makes sense why King could capture that well right because he struggled with the same things so this yeah. is on page one ninety one of the first edition um and, and yeah it's just talking about 
you know, how he got sober and something he noticed. Um, he had noticed an odd fact during his years of sobriety. When things in his life weren't going so well, the morning in 2008 when he had discovered someone had smashed into a window of his car with a rock came to mind, he rarely thought of a drink. When they were going well, however, the old dry thirst had a way of coming back on him. The night after saying goodbye to Billy on the way home from Lewiston with everything okey-doke, he spied a roadhouse bar called the Cowboy Boot and felt a nearly insurmountable urge to go in, to buy a pitcher of beer and get enough quarters to fill the jukebox for at least an hour, to sit there listening to Jennings and Jackson and Haggard, not talking to anyone, not causing any trouble, just getting high, feeling the weight of sobriety. Sometimes it was just like wearing lead shoes, fall away. When he got down to his last five quarters, he played whiskey bent and hellbound six times straight. And, and part of why that resonates with me is because, you know, King talks at length about his addiction issues with both you know, with cocaine and, and alcohol and everything. And I don't think he was ever a partier in the sense that he would, you know, go to these celebrations and get loaded and, and do tabloid worthy things you know I, I feel like he was a very quiet drunk and mm-hmm. it's more about just this this private kind of weight and, I, and I, I think sometimes we see the other kind of alcoholism you know portrayed in, in pop culture so i i was just drawn to that description and it just felt like it was coming from a very real place that he had experienced well yeah and like along those same lines i had some of his alcohol and alcoholism uh kind of centric chapters highlighted as well and what i think really resonated for me and it was really sad as well like yeah. what what i really loved about it was the way that king captures the different shades of alcoholism and and one that really got to me was uh when dan i think it was when he i can't remember if this is when he was under the bridge but this is like when he basically his life is complete shambles but it's him writing about this one moment when he's happy within Mm -hmm. all of it like when all the the dots of his addiction are connecting um i'll read it right here the moon was rising over the river the blanket was spread out behind him soon he would lie down on it pull it around him in a cocoon and sleep he was just high enough to be happy the takeoff and the climb out had been rough but now all that low altitude turbulence was behind him he supposed he wasn't leading what straight america would call an exemplary life but for the time being all was fine he had a bottle of old sun purchased at a liquor store a prudent distance from golden's discount and half a hero sandwich for breakfast tomorrow the future was cloudy but tonight the moon was bright all was as it should be and i think like that's that moment for an addict where it's like i know i have a problem but this all feels so good right now you know and Mm -hmm. there's something kind of lovely about the way he frames it even though it's a guy who is like in the throes of his addiction yeah yeah and in that, in that kind of in that similar vein, um, my my piece came, you know, comes from actually the true knot, which is really weird. Ooh, bring um, it. You mean the uh, true? The the true, <laughs> of course. I'm uh, about that. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Jimmy has this uh, this moment, and it's on page four twenty four. Uh, late afternoon light slanted in through the. Oh, here it is. Late afternoon light slanted in through the Bago's big front windows. Beautiful autumn sunlight. Fall was Jimmy's favorite season, and he intended to still be alive and traveling with the true knot when it came around again, and again, and again. Luckily, he was with the right bunch to get this done. Crow Daddy was brave, resourceful, and cunning. The true had been in tough spots before. He would bring them through this one. It's like the rare moment where you actually get some sort of, like, Mm -hmm. just some sort of thing that you can kind of latch on to with one of these fucking goons. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was shocked by it. I was like literally like shocked because I was like, yeah, there you go. All right. And granted, King could write about a fucking street and have like autumn leaves and, and sun pouring through. And I'd be like, oh, God. Yeah. Amazing. But there was uh, a funny there was a funny bit um, about halfway through the book. I think it's when Abra and Dan first meet. And there's a funny bit when 
they're like nervous about people seeing them together and a girl walks by that Abra knows and they yes. like think at her and they're like uh they're like we're not interesting we're not interesting we're not interesting and I thought that was like just a really that was like one of the more genuine moments of humor that I found yeah. in the book it's like Star Wars yeah it, like totally worked for me uh Dan any other uh word processor of the gods yeah, I'll keep it light you know but, but, but there, that, that was the only good uh paragraph for me in the whole book no I'm just kidding <laughs> um no that's I'm good I'm good uh yeah I got a few more like I, I just thought this writing was really lovely. This is when Andy is with the businessman in the movie theater at oh, the yeah. beginning. Um, I just loved like this tiny little block of text. She put an arm around him and quickly slashed double V's into his right cheek, a cheek so fat it would soon be a jowl. She took a moment to admire her work in the chancy light of the projector's colored dream beam. Then the blood sheeted down. He would wake with his face on fire, the right arm of his expensive suit coat drenched and in need of an emergency room. Just like a little like block of text that I thought was like really well written, really lovely. And similarly, a little bit after that, this is when Dan wakes up in Deanie's bed. And I just think that this is some brutal writing from King that's maybe a little bit over the top, but I enjoy it about like how shitty he feels in his hangover. Another lurch from his unhappy gut. This time it was accompanied by a clench that felt like a hand in a slick rubber glove. That released all the puke triggers. The vinegar smell of hard-cooked eggs in a big glass jar. The taste of barbecue-flavored pork rinds. The sight of french fries drowning in a ketchup nosebleed. All the crap he'd crammed into his mouth last night between shots. He was going to spew, but the images just kept coming, revolving on some nightmare game show prize wheel. I know, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually like this little piece in, uh, on page 162. It's almost like a little short story. The rec room was open around the clock, but as he rarely visited there once the TV was off and the residents were gone. When evening gave way at night and the pulse of Rivington House slowed, as he became restless, patrolling the corridors like a sentry on the edge of enemy territory. Once the lights dimmed, you might not even see him unless you were looking right at him. This unremarkable mouse-colored fur blended in with the shadows. He never went into the guest rooms unless one of the guests was dying. Then he would either slip in if the door was unlatched or sit outside with his tail curled around its haunches, wowing in a low, polite voice to be admitted. When he was, he would jump up on the bed's guest bed. There were always guests at Wivington House, never patients, and settle there, purring. If the person so chosen happened to be awake, he or she might stroke the cat. To Dan's knowledge, no one had ever demanded that Azzy be evicted. They seemed to know he was there as a friend. Mm. And like you could tell, like just knowing the context that King, like, was so influenced by that cat. Like yeah. he just like went all in on like making this like little nugget of a story. It's very yeah. like, Hemingway in a way almost. Yeah. I like that. I, another, there's another bit that I liked and this relates to what I was saying earlier about how Dan's relationship with his dad is so complicated and I can't find the exact um, phrase, but what he talks about, that I found really sad is how he almost feels pity for his dad because in the end, the hotel didn't want Jack. It wanted him. Yeah. And he talks about how, you know, it was just like another indignity in a life of them for Jack Torrance, you know, and it makes him feel, yeah, it makes him feel like not in a bad way, like, like almost like a patsy sort of like in the world of the shining that he was just sort of uh, the, 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 blunt object that the shining was using to try to get danny you know what i mean yeah and i thought that was really effective yeah it's uh they really do actually make you kind of feel a little bit more for for jack in this even if i don't know if it works just because i think it works for me i think it works if you've read the book yeah yeah because like jack is a is an interesting character i mean he's he's, i mean he's clearly more sympathetic in the books anyway yeah yeah Yeah. king always says the the book is about the 
you know, good a good man who is flawed who's trying to be good, you know. Um, and and in the movie, it's but but a dude has already become bad, you know. Right. Uh, and Jordan, I love fucking love the movie, but I I do think Jack is a little bit more well rounded in the book and a little bit more sympathetic. Oh, definitely, totally. Um, totally. I have one last one. Unless you have another, no, go for it. Uh, this is one I think is just it's one of it's another like little short story, and it's when Jack is or not Jack. Uh, Danny is helping. Char- what's the name? Charlie Hayes, like go to mm-hmm. death. And oh. I love this. Yeah, sequence. and he yeah. just sort of like cycles through his life in yeah. this moment. And I think it's a really lovely kind of little short story and a little journey through this guy's life. Instead of ch- taking Charlie's pulse, there was really no point. He took one of the old man's hands in his. He saw Charlie's twin sons at four on swings. He saw Charlie's wife pulling down a shade in the bedroom, wearing nothing but the slip of Belgian lace he'd bought for her, their first anniversary. Saw how her ponytail swung over one shoulder when she turned to look at him. Her face lit in a smile that was all yes. He saw a farmall tractor with a striped umbrella raised over the seat. He smelled bacon and heard Frank Sinatra singing Come Fly With Me from a cracked Motorola radio sitting on a work table littered with tools. He saw a hubcap full of rain reflecting a red barn. He tasted blueberries and gutted a deer and fished in some distant lake whose surface was dappled by steady autumn rain. He was 60, dancing with his wife in the American Legion Hall. He was 30, splitting wood. He was five, wearing shorts and pulling a red wagon. Then the pictures blurred together, the way cards do when they're shuffled in the hands of an expert. And the wind was blowing big snow down from the mountains. And in here was the silence and as he solemn watching eyes. At times like this, Dan knew what he was for. At times like this, he regretted none of the pain and sorrow and anger and horror because they had brought him here to this room while the wind whooped outside. Charlie Hayes had come to the border. Ugh. Perfect. Really good writing. Perfect. So, yeah. Still got it. Still got it, baby. Uh, and on that <laughs> note, are we go? Are, are we hungry? Let's oh, see. I'm starving. We've been waiting and hyping this, <laughs> I think, since the dawn of the pod almost. Yeah, I think we've been like, wait till we get pound cake on Dr. Sleep, and that's where we're going. So uh, tuck in your bibs, people. We got some pound cake to eat. After all you've been talking, everyone in bad mama, everything in the Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Welcome to Pound Cake. Uh, This is the section where we eat hearty helpings of pound cake which is what we <laughs> which is what we call the moments in king that make us blush a little bit but not in a good way uh side note real quick yeah. um I-, I was at a chili cook off recently okay is there a rule of that much difference between pound cake and cornbread uh dan I feel like, like a resident, <laughs> resident piggy. I, think that's that's piggy I I think cornbread to me is a little bit saltier yeah. and a little bit crum- crumblier. I think pound, pound cake is uh, sturdier. It's moister. It's that's um, true. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. I think so. If I'm, if I'm I, although I don't, of, I was thinking about the other day because I was like, I don't think I'd mind if I had chili on top of like pound cake. Yeah, I think well, it's, probably, I mean, it's probably better with cornbread. I mean, it probably yeah. is better. With cornbread. <laughs> Uh, Dan, why don't you kick us off with some pound cake? Yeah, this is a. I, I'm going to keep flipping through after I read this one to see it because I, I, I was so enamored of the pound cake. I, didn't, I wasn't writing down specific page numbers, but I do have this the one. I think it might be the. Yeah, it can't be the first instance of it, but it's, it's one of the first times with, with the true that we get it. Okay, so this is after once again after they've they've fed, um, and they're they're getting ready to travel again. And she says, "This is Rose and Crow Daddy." Rose says. We'll find her when it's time. Don't worry. If you say so, you're the boss. That's right, honey bunch. This time, instead of patting his thigh, she squeezed his basket. Omaha tonight, it's a La Quinta Inn. I reserve the entire back end of the first floor. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, that, that's like that, just that's funny. Be like, oh, we're, like we're gonna have a fucking orgy. I got the whole, <laughs> the whole <laughs> floor. And then she says, "Good. My intent is to ride you like a roller coaster. We'll see you ride too." Crow said he was feeling frisky from the Trevor kid. So is Rose. So were they all. He <laughs> got cross Canadian ragweed singing about the boys from Oklahoma who rolled their joints all wrong. The true world west. I just love this idea. Like, yeah, I got the whole fucking floor for us. <laughs> We're gonna fuck the in- through the entire room for uh, the entire floor. Yeah, yeah I, like, I have, I have some other true. Wait, do you want to go, Mike? I, I got one. I got one. Just kills me because, like, this is just awful. Um, so, this is so stupid. So it's on page one ninety one, um, and this is something that honestly I had heard about uh, a year beforehand because my when my girlfriend read it. Uh, she texted me immediately being like, oh, this is going to be the best Count Pound Cake ever. Um, she snapped on the TV and turned it up loud. Pat Sajak was being embraced by a woman with enormous jahoobies who had just <laughs> finished solving the puzzle, which was never rest on your la- on your laurels. And he took a moment to admire the mammoth mammaries. <laughs> mammoth mammaries. I wrote those down too. Then turn back to the cozies. Mammoth memories all, all there was. Mammoth, Mammoth memories. Oh, yeah, I I just wrote down page one fifty nine. Jahoobies with four five exclamation marks, and then I just wrote Mammoth memories. It's ri- it. ridiculous. <laughs> um, I mean, look, we all say, uh, yeah, I think when any of us are in the throes of passion, all right, we probably say stuff that we'd cringe at if you know if we heard it said loud. But there's something so fucking funny about. But we, but also. A lot of this dialogue isn't during a sex scene. It's like it's like just observing things. Yeah. Well, that's what I always find funny about King. I've met, I know I've mentioned in previous episodes where it'll just be like a normal, and like I remember there's like a bit in Pet Cemetery that I always find really funny because it's just a normal like casual scene, and then out of nowhere it just kind of like. Yeah, it's like fucking a pussy or something like that, you know. And it's just like, wait, what the fuck? Like, why did why did it have to go there? Um, I have some good ones from early on. Uh, some good Rose the Hat ones. So, Rose yeah, stood on her. Rose the Hat. Yeah, like. Rose stood on her tiptoes and stretched her fingers, touching the roof of the RV. Mm. That's your business, honey doll. I'm not your psychiatrist. She wasn't wearing a bra. Andy could see the shifting punctuation marks of her nipples against her shirt. Yes. <laughs> That's such a weird phrase. And then uh, I'll oh, go to the next page. <laughs> yeah, and the next one. Rose looked at her, smiling, saying nothing. <laughs> Andy met those beautiful gray eyes for five seconds, then had to drop her gaze. But what her eyes fell upon when she did were those smooth breasts, unharnessed but with no sign of a sag. And when she looked up again, her eyes only got as far as the woman's lips, those coral pink lips. I just, I love the unharnessed but with no sign of a sag. It's so weird. Well, it's, it's like, it's like the wanting to have it both ways. You know, it's like the, oh, she was. She like she had huge tits, but she could also hang with the boys and watch football. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like these, uh, it's like just King, like it's like, it's just such male gazy. It's so so fan, so uh, fantasy driven. Where you said King uses the word gobbling for oral sex, uh, which oh. is something he did in the stand <laughs> yeah. too. And I I always remembered that from when I was a kid. Like when before I like when I first read it, and I had no idea like the logistics of oral sex like the the fact that king used the word gobbling was always very bizarre to me i know the gobbling or the hobbling (laughs) misery's the hobbling king's the gobbling 
Do you have Do you have more, Mike? I got. I got. Like Grandpa Flick is so associated with shit. It's like ridiculous. Uh-huh. He like, poops a lot. On like page three twenty three, it's like Grandpa Flick Crow said is no longer holding his fudge. Like <laughs> this guy's dying. Who's like centuries old. And like they're just using this crudities to like describe him, which is just weird. Um, I have, oh God, Jesus. Um, this is weird. Okay, so <laughs> sorry, man. You just don't want it. No, no, no. Um, I, I forgot what I wrote. I forgot where this is. I wrote it down. Um, it's a Cheddar bit, but she goes. In any case, Cheddar turned the conversation herself. Do you know what I like? Uh, you know what I like about him at this age? Nope. John liked them at all ages, at least until they turned 14. When they turned 14, their glands went into hyperdrive, and most of them felt obliged to spend the next five years being booger snots. So, like, that's just, it's just like a weird, it's really, like, it's just a really bizarre way for an adult to yeah. be thinking about children. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and there's a lot of that in this. Um, so, do you have another? I have a bizarre way to look at uh, you know, older people. Okay. Um, this is actually kind of sad, but at the same time, it's a little fucking weird and kind of is a little record skip moment. But it's a, uh, it's a uh, when Danny's with Eleanor and uh, King writes. She rolled her eyes, then cocked her head and smiled at him. Maurice Chevalier, you ain't, but I like you, Cher. You're sh- you're cheery, which is important. You're cheeky, which is more important. And you've got a lovely bottom, which is all important. The ass of a man is the piston that drives the world, and you have a good one. In my prime, I would have corked it with my thumb and then eaten you alive, <laughs> preferably by the pool of the Meridian and Monte Carlo, with an admiring audience to applaud my front side and backside efforts. It's too much. Fucking Why are Christ. you still going? She's going to die. <laughs> She's like on her deathbed and she's forming sentences like that. I think one of those sentences can work where she keeps going. Oh, 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 that too. Okay. That too. too. (laughs) Uh, She just bump it. The the porking it with the thumb. It's like, like, oh my God. This is, this is my last one. And this is just one that it's not as, as reprehensible as some of the others. Uh, It's page 36. So it's early, (laughs) but it's, 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 it's uh, Danny talking about Deanie. And like their night together. Hey, Deanie, squeeze my weenie. <laughs> had he actually said that? He was terribly afraid he had. Some of it was coming back to him now, and even some was too much. Playing eight ball, trying to put a little extra spin on the cue, and he seemed to remember Joe Diffie. Why had he scratched so outrageously? Because he was drunk, and because Deanie was standing behind him. Deanie had been squeezing his weenie just below the line of the table, <laughs> and he was showing off for her. <laughs> it's just the. It's like you just imagine this seventy-year-old man like yeah. writing this book and just writing well, the, the sentence "squeeze my weenie," cackling. Molly gets up, and then you wonder, you're like, did he name her Deanie just so he could put that line in there? I you know. know I, mean? I was wondering that too. It's a, it's it's not a very common name, so I, yeah, I just wonder that each time. Weenie. I'm looking to see. I feel like there's one more. Uh, you guys keep talking. I feel like there's one more, or maybe there's not around the true. I thought I thought there was one other after um, after they talk about booking the whole hotel room. I thought there. I thought. There, oh, I thought I'm sure there is. Oh, I'm sure there's. I think yeah, I wrote. I wrote down most of them, but I think uh, I probably yeah. skipped a few. Let me see. Because uh, let's see. Response. Nah, that's like I am. Um, yeah, there, there's like a bit. There's a pretty big gap where we don't hear from. The true for a little bit. I'm just seeing. Let's see. Bury the bury the chunk. No, that's all Aber stuff. There's something about yeah. an educated tongue at one point. But I will that's say. Like, I will say. It's actually kind of classy. Yeah, I will say that there was. I did find it very funny when like 
when Barry was watching like porno while he was sick yes. to like help like capture Abra yes. or whatever. That was just a really bizarre choice. Yeah. Like I'm just like I'm like, why does he need to do this again? Like why is he watching porn? It's and a he was like commenting but it's on also, it. Yeah, it was like a yeah. distraction or something. It was so weird. Yeah. Uh Dan, did you find what you're looking for? Oh wait, is this the uh the pound see, no, cake you were looking for? Split. I know I'm seeking it. I feel like I feel like there's one that uh let's see. Dan's searching the, the box for crumbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Piggy's just wanting more. <laughs> He's still she, ravenous. Like, I'm, I'm it can't be. It gotta be more pound cake. Where's my pound cake? <laughs> you took all the pound cake. <laughs> Come on, Santa. Santa. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm yeah, having so I, much fun. I, I don't know. I feel like I remember one. Uh, isn't there something where they talk? Maybe this is wishful thinking. Don't they talk about like the RV like shaking because they're like, having sex? I didn't, I, they might. That? They might. I would not be surprised. I don't know. If they're constant listeners, if uh, if any of you know what I'm talking about, or if I'm just I'm being horny myself and just making <laughs> that up. But the book made yeah. Dan horny. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I think like yeah. No, I keep seeing Barry, anytime I see like Barry the Chunk or. Greedy G. Greedy G. I love Greedy G. Greedy G. Steamhead Steve. Steamhead Steve. Wait, Diesel Doug? Yeah, they all deserve to be in Pound Cake as well as Misery. Did I find it? Did I find it? Hold on. Where was the hat? St. Hall's. Neither is up to. There were dances. Wait. We're going to leave all this search in. All this search in. And our listeners are going to fucking kill us. No, yeah, yeah, just like wait, let me, if, if it's not on this next, uh, on this next page, that's Indiana. Yeah, Indiana, I, I, let it we go. Move on. You know, I, I can always drop it in the King's Dominion if I. You could. <laughs> I hey, you it, know, yeah. look, 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 like the greatest pound cake. You could put it in the pocket and save it for later. <laughs> what the fuck? Pocket, <laughs> mush it up in the Endermans, you know, Endermans pound cake. Um, is that an old phrase? No, I, I I just made it up. But like, the, I imagine that there's been many times in my past where I walked to Seven Eleven, grabbed a Slurpee, probably bought a pound cake, and put it in my pocket. That's bizarre. I think instead of walking to Seven Eleven, you should walk to a little place we call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. A plus transition. That was a good one. That was a really that good one. That was old school, yeah. Randy. Yeah. Uh, let's start with King's Dominion. I've got some here, including one straight up page 14. Yeah. We get a reference to Charlie Manx. Oh, why do we know Charlie Manx? It's not a Stephen King book. It's, not. it's Nosferatu by Joe Hill. Our favorite AMC show. The Yeah. The universes are merging. Uh, and so and then he makes a Christmas land reference later. Yeah. So he's very much because uh, there's like a myth about old Charlie Manx, I believe, in the world of this book. So a little bit of uh, universe blending, yep. I think. Father and son, a little bit of bonding we're seeing on the pages. So. Uh, on page 177, the true knot has a bunch of company towns. Uh, towns relying entirely on the, you know, on them. Uh, a list of examples includes uh, Jerusalem's lot. Yeah. So we know that these vamps have been there. Uh, obviously Sidewinder because of uh, the Overlook Hotel. Um, but I believe Sidewinder is also in misery. Yeah. So yeah, ties to that. So um, I've got some more, but oh yeah, uh, I've got more too. Yeah, There's a mention of Castle Rock early on. There is. Yeah. Because uh, they, I think they go to the doctor there or something. Um. 
And then the file drawers that they mention, uh, the sort of like inside the mind that it's comprised of all these different oh, file drawers. Yeah. That's a reference, or it, it's it reminds me at least of okay. uh, Dreamcatcher. Yeah, I, so because that's how with Jonesy, Jonesy's trapped in yeah. in a in a warehouse full of cabinets. I believe is is um, how his mind is. On page one eighty five, Tommy is nineteen according to his driver's license. Who is a character named Tommy? Oh, Tommy. <laughs> yeah, some random. Okay. Grandpa Flick. Uh, uh, doesn't- oh, you mentioned Desperation earlier. There is a Desperation reference here. I might have missed it. Yeah, so I-80 in Nevada in the mountain country west of Draper, they say. And that's oh. kind of, that's a reference apparently. To that's them. interesting. So. Uh, here, there was a mention of a character named Abby Freeman, which of course made me think of Abigail Fremantle. Oh, yeah. From a little book called The Stand. Oh. Dan, do you have any? Sorry, if I'm being honest, I've just been flipping through trying to find this. Uh, this oh, my God. Topic. I can't believe you're still looking for <laughs> you guys, it. You guys, you're still you trying to find going. it. Oh, my Lord. Um, ha, on page 364, Dan says there are other worlds than these. Yep. I have that. Too. Um, and Flanagan does the nice inter- inverse in the movie by having Halloran say cause, cause wheel. wheel. Yeah, um, that was neat. Uh Another one I have is, and this one's dumb, but it's just more of a trope than like a King's Dominion thing. Yeah. But King loves to have characters who squeeze their fists so hard that yes. they leave red crescents, like bloody crescents in their palm. And Rose does that at one point. Yeah. So yeah. I was just like, I'll always think of Harold Lauder doing it, but uh, he, I think that pops up in at least four or five King books. Did you uh, like the, the Dean Kuhn snub on uh, page 219? Uh, remind me of it. Yeah. So let me see if I can... Uh pull it up i I vaguely recall it yeah but it it was something that um grabbed it was late at night too when i when i when i saw that one but uh yeah it's they're they're friends right coons and king or or i I have to imagine i have to imagine that they have like a friendly rivalry yeah i mean uh so yeah it says uh just as lucy was deciding she'd have to settle for an old dean (laughs) coons and a slightly newer lisa garner abra came running over to her so that's funny nice little nice little faux shade you got going on there, Dan. Um, I, I we need to know if you have any King's Dominion. No, I th- I'm, well, I did, but I, th- I think you guys are getting there's, it. I'm, uh, hey, look, my 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 detective's magnifying glasses on on uh, <laughs> the corner. <laughs> no, you guys, you got. I found something. I found something funny, but it's not. It's not what I was thinking of. So, do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. Why not? So, uh, they're talking about uh, like. Uh, hair tonic that that grandpa flick used afterwards it says they hung above the pillow which was still indented by the weight of his head and stained with wild root cream oil hair tonic of which she seemed to have an endless supply she thought she remembered greedy greedy g telling her what he had bought it ebay ebay hey dan pause for a second uh it looks like you're cutting out um let's pause for a second how we doing Good, can you hear me? Yeah, try it one more time. Yeah, start from the beginning of the quote. For sure, for sure. All right. They hung above the pillow, which was still indented by the weight of his head and stained with wild root cream oil hair tonic, of which he seemed to have an endless supply. She thought she remembered Greedy G telling her once that he had bought it on eBay. eBay, for fuck's sweet sake. I mean, it's not... (laughs) Got real pound cake, but uh, I just like fuck sweet sake and fuck uh, sweet sake. Like, Any uh, greedy G they, appearance. You get more greedy G. Also, I think Tommy is a, is a member of the True because they they on the other the page before it this is. they say yeah. Tommy the truck. That's Tommy a, the truck. He's only nineteen. Uh, yeah, I have a couple. Okay. Yeah. So um, one is a reference to the talisman. Did you have that one? No. Okay. So uh, Dan says all will be well and all will be wait wait, wait no. 
Yeah, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Oh, yeah, that is from Talisman, isn't it? Um, and then I thought the idea of, like, Rose imagining or, like, Abra seeing Rose come to the window is kind of like a nice allusion to Sa- Salem's Lot as well. That might be a little too Room 237, but... Um, no, I like that. Room 237s are always welcome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and there's one more. Um, Halloran refers to the True Knot as the Empty Devils, and that's the title of the book written by Scott Landon in uh, Lisey, in Lisey's story. Ooh, that's a deep one. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's cool. Yeah, that's... Um, some 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 lots of King's Dominion here. I know. Well, I think that's the thing is when you do these later books, there are a lot of connections. Like we're only a sequel. Yeah, I, this might be oh. one of the longer King's Dominions we've done because yeah. it's always in the later books where the the oh, real d- connections are. And it's yeah. going to be extra long because it's going to come with a little piece of pound cake. <laughs> oh, did you really? <laughs> well, he added. He read it. So let's. Yeah. Uh, I think it's time for our final ratings. Oh, do you want to have? Did you? Oh, you already read the, the, You didn't have any more then. I thought, no, no, no. I found I found the educated tongue part that uh, you guys you guys. Oh yes. It says real quick. So, well, so first they talk about they're going to Sidewinder, the, the true, and they said, they said, uh, Rose says, one other thing, there's a little hole in the wall store in Sidewinder called District X. Crow raised his eyebrows. The porno palace with the inflatable nurse doll in the window. You know it, I see. Rose's tone is dry. Uh, now listen to me, Daddy. Crow listened. And then at the end, then uh, once they're in Sidewinder and uh, um, Crow, is, Crow is leaving the RV, she, she says, uh, no innocent bystanders. Kill the parents if you need to. Kill anyone who tries to interfere, but keep it quiet. Kerr snapped off a comic salute. Yes, my captain. Get out of here, idiot, but give me another kiss first. Maybe a little of that educated tongue for good measure. He gave her what she asked for. Rose <laughs> held him tight and for a long time. So that, uh, yeah, but I don't know. The, the RV shaking, I don't know. I um, That might be just a, a phantom dream of mine. So. <laughs> All right. I love it. Maybe you just imagined it. You Maybe. Know. Oh, that is a phantom dream. Fucking uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's time for us to share our nose ratings and our final thoughts. Yeah. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Welcome to our nose ratings and final thoughts. This is when we give nose ratings and final thoughts. Um, I'd like to start. I think this book is ambitious and strange and like it's not bad. Mm-mm. There's like as as we demonstrated with our previous sections, there's a lot of good writing in this book. And there's a lot of like spooky sequences in this book and there's a lot of fun stuff, but there's also so many like just massive examples of of King at his bluest, yeah. I think. Yeah. And so I think that uh, it's an imbalanced read. You know, like sometimes I was reading this book and just marveling at how much I enjoyed it. Like especially the first 120 pages, 150 pages, I think are so good and like really moving. I'm really invested in this journey. It seems to me like a really smart pivot from the themes of The Shining into this new book. But I think that, the YA aspect is is a huge hindrance. Uh, the True Knot are a little too silly and a t- little too underdeveloped to ever really resonate as really real threats. I like the fact that, you know, the nuance we do see of them comes kind of in the, uh, the fact that they are almost a dying species, which mm-hmm. is very interesting and something that I'm glad King digs into. But his characters, they fail to really resonate and they fail to really threaten and so, but I think that, you know, as a character, 
And I said this about Ewan McGregor in the movie too. He kind of just feels like a plot machine sometimes. Yes. But yes. but I still I think that when King does delve into sort of the mind of Danny and really digs into the 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 more complex feelings he has, especially about his father, uh, the kind of things that you would only really get from the book and not the movie. You can see that there's a passion there, like in King's regard to to tell the story of Jack Torrance is like he sees him, mm-hmm. not as the public sees him. But at the same time, and this is, you know, like I what I I think what I said about the movie is that I thought it was the best adaptation of this book that could be made in a world that also contains Stanley Kubrick's Shining. You know, yeah. that's and so it's hard for me then when I get a paragraph like this and I'm going to read it and this is when Dan sees uh Jack at the end like because Jack essentially like the implication is that he helps him defeat Rose you know and so uh so this is like in the aftermath of the confrontation you didn't need to be Ebenezer Scrooge to know there were good ghosty people as well as bad ones as they walked down toward the Overlook Lodge Dan paused to look back at Roof of the World he was not entirely surprised to see a man standing on the platform by the broken rail. He raised one hand, the summit of Pawnee Mountain visible through it, and sketched a, f- uh, sketched a flying kiss that Dan remembered from his childhood. He remembered it well. It had been their special end-of-the-day thing. Bedtime, Doc. Sleep tight. Dream up a dragon and tell me about it in the morning. Dan knew he was going to cry, but not now. This wasn't the time. He lifted his own hand to his mouth and returned the kiss. He looked for a moment longer at what remained of his father. Then he headed down to the parking lot with Billy. When they got there, he looked once more. Roof of the world was empty. In a vacuum, that's a sweet little section. It is. It really is. But in the larger realm of King, when we think about the Nicholson version of The Shining Mm -hmm. and the fact that Jack was really truly and in many ways monstrous in the original book. It almost feels like he's letting Jack off too easy. Yeah. And that's what I like about the movie is that the Jack we see in that movie is cruel. Yeah. You know, he's still a monster. When he's in limbo. Yeah, yeah, he's in limbo and it's yeah. it's fascinating to see. But you know what else this paragraph summons is the end of the Mick Gare series. Exactly. <laughs> it does. Which which honestly, you know, and Flanagan has admitted to this that Doctor Sleep pays homage to as well. So Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is uh, It's the saccharine sort of sentimentality that doesn't belong in this story. Exactly. And it's one that I think doesn't quite land even though I can read that section I think understand what King was doing and why it's moving from King's perspective but it doesn't quite work because as much as King wants to pretend that you know the shining the book exists independently of Stanley Kubrick's movie it's not really the case you know that's Mm -hmm. just how it goes and but at the same time you know uh, I think there's a lot to like in Dr. Sleep. I like it a lot more the second read when I sort of had a, uh, I don't know, a better bearing on what was happening in this book because I think I was so, I felt so hoodwinked and I felt so tonally jarred yeah. uh, by it, my first read of it that it was a much more negative reading experience here that I went in kind of knowing and also knowing what Flanagan's approach was going to be. I think I was more open-minded and I was more... Uh, I was more receptive to the better elements of the book. So, but at that at that said, I think there's still a lot of flaws in it, and um, which we've discussed. So, I think I'm going to give this one two and a half out of five bright red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, who wants to go next? I don't know how to follow that up. Um. Yeah, so, yeah, that, was, that kind of uh, that kind of summed up everything I, I feel about too. I yeah, mean, I, I think 
the word imbalance is a really good way to describe it because for, for me it really is just a matter of the vampire stuff never quite gelling with the the shining elements which i i'm just more attracted to as a reader you know and mm-hmm. I, I do think i do think his refusal to grapple with the the kubrick version which the, this new movie adaptation actually does quite well i think but i think king's refusal that just muddles everything a little bit so um yeah i'm gonna go but but there, i know mean, there are some really freaky parts i do i do think at least half of the book honors the legacy of the shining really well um and i i too did enjoy it a lot more the second time around and also watching it or reading it in conjunction with seeing the movie so i too am going to give it two and a half bright red pennywise claw noses mike you know i keep going back to the the black grandpa section that you read, Mm -hmm. you know, and I keep thinking about how those sections specifically are why I read King. Yeah. You know, things that they don't traditionally capture in any of his movies. Mm -hmm. It's the, the things that are too small to actually make it ever into adaptations. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why the shining is so, you know, so goddamn scary is because Kubrick is able to kind of, you know, capitalize on those little moments by just putting them, you know, as aesthetic or mm-hmm. accoutrements in the, the Overlook Hotel, which is why I'll always argue that it's actually one of the best adaptations because he actually got what makes King's story so scary. There's a lot of that in this book and there's a lot of it that I like, but it is layered with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of scum <laughs> and a lot of guff, a lot of barnacles. Uh, and 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 it's just too much at times, and um, there aren't enough bridges. And I'll just leave it at that because I think honestly, you summed it up like you know perfectly. Oh, thanks. Um, but I do think that I think that's a good point. There's not enough bridges. No. Yeah. And and I think for you know completest sake and those that really want to enjoy the nostalgic value of being able to see older characters and to kind of find some sort of you know narrative closure i guess if you're really wondering what happened to danny which i personally wasn't at yeah. the end of the shining um then then that's great so but i, I yeah i'm right there with the two and a half i i, I think yeah i yeah. think that's fair because that you know for the the narrative arc that you do get of danny in the, the the beginning and some of the the moments that you get to have in fraser are worth being there you know yeah. it, 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 the, these little snapshots that are nice so for that alone, I, th- I think it's worth it. But God, there is some f- really frustrating sections of this, mm-hmm. and you know, like some of the sections of even the stand, which is a classic novel and like clearly a four, you know, four noser, uh, if not more. Um, there are stretches where you're just like, let's get going. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a solid summation. I think this was a solid summation of a frustrating book, and I yeah. think we we highlighted what is good about it as well uh, as much as we dunked on some of the uh, the uh, the less savory aspects of it yeah. but thank you guys so much for doing this thank you for listening uh, you listeners and we've joked a lot about getting one star reviews on iTunes so please fight against the people who give us one star reviews by leaving five star reviews we would welcome those heartily on our iTunes page wherever you leave reviews on podcasts please do it for us the losers club and Stay tuned to our socials. Follow our socials. We're going to be announcing when we'll be returning. We're not sure when that is just yet, but I think we've got some exciting stuff planned for the future. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be there with jokes, with bits, with news, all that stuff. And we may or may not uh, have another episode this year. But like I said, stay tuned. We'll let you know. Um, At the very least, 
you know, it chapter two is gonna be hitting uh, the Blu-ray and socials, and, uh, not socials, but <laughs> it's gonna be hitting Blu-ray, and I'll probably do some sort of live tweet thing that could be fun, since you know that'll be something to kill uh, yeah. time over the holidays, whatever. That'll be fun. Uh, maybe I'll hold my Stephen King Funko since that was announced, and I'm hoping I get that for. Hunter. Oh yeah, yeah I so. saw that in the news today. Very exciting. Well, cool. Uh, yeah, I think that's good. Dan, thanks for being with us. We always love having you. Mike, it's I always, always love having you on the podcast. Just You're like great. Thanks to the friends. <laughs> thanks to the fans. Thanks to everyone. It's just, I, I love you guys. Thank you. Thanks everyone. I love talking about you guys like it's like Tim and Greg on on, on cinema. Like Greg's always his guest. He's I love that. Just four years later. <laughs> um, well, on that note, uh, we'll see you Probably sometime in the future. Sometime in the future. Uh, and so on that note, long days. And pleasant nights. And pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. Consequence Podcast Network.